Hey everybody and welcome to the Fathom and Heavy podcast. My name is Andrew and today I'm bringing you part two of my conversation with Craig Lucicero. In part one we went up through uh, the first, kind of the first iteration of Forbidden uh, up to 1997 and in this episode we uh, kind of pick up where we left off. We get into Man Made God, Spiral Arms, Dress the Dead which is his current band we talk about his experiences working with Rick Rubin. Uh, we talk about some of the significant events in Bay Area thrash metal history that have happened sort of since that scene kind of fell apart in the early to mid-90s. We talk about kind of how it was re-energized and reinvigorated. Um, but we start off talking about his summer tour, 1993 summer tour with Death, uh, which is something that I knew very little about, and we just jump right in there. So uh, this is a fantastic conversation. It's long. It's two solid hours. Um, so uh, just just go into this understanding that, but there is a ton of amazing information, just fantastic stories. And um, again, I am so deeply appreciative um, to Craig for spending this much time with me going through all of this. Um, as a fan of this music for as long as I have been, uh, this was this was a really special experience for me. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention in the intro to part one was how Craig and I actually um, connected to, to even uh, begin to do this. And it's, it's kind of ironic because, uh, you know, I, I've been watching Craig play in, in various bands since 1987. Um, you know, our paths have crossed a handful of times. We've, we've chatted here and there over the years. But it was really uh, this past November when the band Fister from Missouri was in town in Oakland um, Kenny Snarzik from Fister was on episode 21 of Fathoming Heavy, and he and I have stayed in touch since then. They're playing at a club in Oakland. Uh, I went down to check them out, went to look for Kenny. Kenny is outside talking with Craig. I walk up, say hi to Kenny. Kenny says, do you know Craig? I said, well, I know who Craig is. I looked at Craig and said, Our, you know, we've, we've chatted over the years and uh, kind of went through some of my history with him. Kenny looked at Craig and said, you should do his podcast. And walked away, uh, leaving Craig and me to stand there kind of looking awkwardly at each other. Um, Craig says, well, what's this about? And that's kind of where this started. Um, so uh, hats off to Kenny for um, his his abrupt introduction and exit, um, which, which started this whole thing. So, uh, and I do want to say uh, also, I don't do, I don't do top 10 lists um, because, you know, who cares? But uh, if I did, I would definitely put Fister's No Spirit Within um, from last year uh, close to the top, if not at the top of that list. Um, it's, it's just a stellar record. Um, you know, exactly what you would, would think from them. Uh, you know, the sludge, doom, slow, super heavy, um, but with lots of subtleties and nuance. It's just really well done, well written. Um, so check that out if you haven't. And uh, let's see. Well, enough of this. Um, let's just dig into this. Uh, part two, Craig Lee Cicero, Forbidden, Man Made God, Spiral Arms, Dress the Dead. Uh, you can find me, Fathom and Heavy, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email me at fathomingheavy at gmail.com. All right, let's do it.
yes, realized kind of the pleasure to be back. <laughs> realized kind of midway through that um, we had a time constraint. Plus, the episode would have been you know four hours long if we had just kept going that day. Yeah, you so, only you only want to bore people two hours at a time. Two hours at a time, max. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks for coming back, and uh, I figured we we pick up not quite where we left off. There are a few things I want to touch on. Um, a few kind of tangential things, if I'm saying that wow. right. Um, and I'm going to start with one of those. This is a question that um, I think I think we blew past it last time. Knowing at that point that we were going to do a part two, I said, I'm just going to save this. Um, I'd like you to tell me about your experience um, touring with death in 1993. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, going back, you know... Uh, to my my origins getting to even know Chuck um, when I was a kid passing around Forbidden Evil Flyers um, at Ruthie's Inn he was passing around he, he was here just came to the Bay Area to start promoting death I don't know if he was recruiting or promoting but you know Chuck was a student of you know, metal and he wanted to investigate and he wanted to see what our scene was all about and uh, we hit it off and just hung out and talked like walking through Ruthie's Okay. And, um, you know, then I really didn't hear from him again. And I knew that Death had put out a record. Didn't really think much about it. This is all kind of leading into the, the where it all ended and started. But uh, years later, when we got signed to uh, Combat, uh, they put us on a, a promotional cassette. And they had sent us a bunch, and I grabbed mine, and, and it had Death's... Uh, I believe it was Pull the Plug was on there with Chalice of Blood was on there with Dark Angels had some stuff and all these bands I was like oh yeah well cool I'm in great company I remember this guy so then fast forward to a few months later they told us we were going to do they are going to do an Ultimate Revenge 2 right and Ultimate Revenge 1 for you, those of you who don't know and I'm sure most of you know that are listening to this but you all need to know yeah, yeah it, had, it had Slayer Exodus and Venom not necessarily in that order but uh, so Ultimate Revenge Two, I was like, "Wow, this is gonna be fucking great." Who's playing? And it was Dark Angel, Death, uh, Raven, Forbidden, and a band called Faith and Fear, Faith or Fear, right. Faith or Fear. Let me say that clearly: Faith or Fear. It's like Daffy Duck. Um, and I got really excited about the prospect of playing with Dark Angel and Death. And uh, of course, I was a huge fan of Raven uh, to begin with. But I, you know. That's a whole other story. But, you know, I was like, okay, well, this isn't, you know, immediately my first thought, well, this isn't going to be as good as that. I mean, not if we're involved and there's not, like, super high caliber. You know, it was the best of what Combat had at the time besides Exodus. And I think Exodus was actually in the process of moving off to Capital. But And Raven was on Combat? Yeah, they were. Point? Okay. They were. All right. They did that album. I, I don't what was it... Uh, Nothing, nothing exceeds like excess or something or so. Right, I think Stay Hard was the last one I remember from them. Yeah, that was, which was before. I care to forget Stay Hard. I'm really good friends with John Gallagher okay. too. Like I love the Gallagher brothers, but that's like I said, a whole other story. Yeah. We go to Philadelphia, which is our first show out of state ever. We fly there with Debbie Bono, you know, our manager at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all excited. Uh, we get to the hotel, and then the label says, hey, you know, we're all up here partying in the room, uh, bringing the band up. And this was like uh, Scott Gibbons, who went on to uh, 
working Roadrunner for years and Megadon, uh, Gio- Giovanni, I think it's Giovanni. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, these are all guys that moved up in the business and did different stuff later, but they were working there. So Debbie gives us this big lecture. This is all kind of leading to how Chuck and I became friends. So Debbie gives us this big lecture. Okay. So, all right, I want you guys to be on your best behavior. Don't blow it for the label. Don't show them you're a bunch of assholes. Be mature, you know, just like this whole riot act about how to how to not be uh, irresponsible kids like we were. Like exactly as what it was, especially <laughs> you know me and Matt. Or they, you know, but so we're like, all right, you know, whatever. Yeah, let's go upstairs. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go drink some beers. You know, so we knock on the door. I open the or they open the door and it's Chuck opens the door. And I'm like, dude, and he's all, dude, and we're just like, yeah, we're doing this together, you know, we've we've come this far, it was like just this moment, I look over past him, and I see all the guys in Dark Angel hover, hovered by the window, uh, looking out the window with the window open, and then I notice they're holding like what look like water balloons, I'm like, what are they doing? And then the guy from the label's all, they're dropping piss bombs over there, I'm like, and I look at Debbie, I'm all, really? Like, you, <laughs> you, you want us to be on our best behavior, and these guys are dropping piss bombs. Yeah, good, and then, yeah, you know, but, you know, so so Chuck and I just totally hit it off. Yeah. And um, and we hung out that night and talked for most of the night and then uh, hung out a lot the next day. And, you know, I hadn't become good friends with Gene yet. Uh, you know, he was still mysterious and intimidating to me behind his, you know, you know smoked glasses and but I thought Death was great and Dark Angel was cool. They were like bees in a blender. They were not the tightest band, but they were so powerful. Yeah, right. yeah. Raven was, was cool, but no, everyone left when Raven played. Like the place just emptied out before they even hit the stage hmm. because of lack of respect for anything old back then. So that was pretty lame. So, you know, we did our things and um, I didn't see Chuck again until 1990 when Forbidden was on tour and uh, we went to Tampa. And we had to cancel the show because the stage literally fell. It was an outdoor show. And then, the, like, the uh, the stage literally fell. The lighting trust and everything fell while we were up there getting to do sound check. Death Angel was doing their thing. I was up there, too. But it all fell, like, right around us. And the heavy stuff all fell right around us. But Chuck was there visiting. Uh, to, he came to see us that day. And so when the show got canceled, we hung out. And he had the new painkiller cassette which mm-hmm. wasn't out yet pretty so yeah pre pre-release we were just stoked driving around his beater car cranking painkillers like dude it's so metal <laughs> so metal bro so anyway so you know the friendship continued yeah. and then i watched them do their things and i and i loved human i thought human was great yeah and then individual thought patterns came out I saw Death a few times when they came back after that. You know, like every time they came to the Bay Area, I basically saw them all the way up to Berkeley Square. Mm-hmm. I think it was the last time. Right. Was um, it Berkeley Square or the Maritime? I can't remember which was. I didn't see the Maritime one, okay. so I guess I missed that. Right. Uh, probably Maritime was later. Who knows? I might have been on tour at that time. But he, uh, we, we, we just liked each other. Yeah, you just know? friends. Yeah. I know I'd heard rumors about his attitude. and right. You know, I'd heard that he was... If you crossed the line with him, which was easy to cross, that he would never forgive you, and he would write a song about you, or whatever. <laughs> but then uh, individual thought patterns came out with Gene on it, and I, and I remember listening to it and seeing the philosopher video on uh, on MTV, 
And it was the same night. This is all so weird. It was the same night that they debuted a video from Steve Vai that had Devin Townsend singing. Mm. And it was all this, like, I was, at first I watched Philosopher, I was like, that's killer. Well, that's really cool. They've really grown a lot, you know, and it sounded great with Gene in the band. Uh, And then they played the Devin Townsend thing, and it's like, in my head, I'm like, I would kill to play with that singer. That guy looks fearless to me. Mm -hmm. Devin, who has he turned into, you know? So, literally, maybe a day or two after that, I get a phone call from Steve DiGiorgio, who I really didn't talk to much. I knew him from Satis. But he, he had got my number. I'm not exactly sure from who. But he called on Chuck's behalf to say, hey, you know, Chuck really wants you to sit down on this next tour in Europe. You know, can you come out to Florida and rehearse? And I go, I'm just intimidated as hell at this point. I'm like, oh, man, I, I, I don't know, man. You know, I, plus Forbidden was making a demo or we were preparing to do the demo that got assigned to uh, Gun at the time. And we were hitting the studio at a certain date. And I had no time to learn anything. And I go, dude, I just can't go to Florida. And I just, I, you just have to tell Chuck, thank you, but I can't do this because, you know, my timing. So then he calls back the next day. He goes, hey, man, so Chuck decided he wants to come to the Bay Area to rehearse and he's not taking no for an answer. Wow. And I go, oh. He's like, yes, yeah, so we'll practice like over there at, uh, I, I, what was it? Was it Jackson Street? He said, we'll practice over there at Jackson Street. Go ahead and get your demo done, and then we'll start the next day. Because I told him the dates I was doing it. I was like, uh, okay. And I literally, Andrew, I had no time between my recording, my working for that demo, and the next day to learn one song. Just because my brain was so crammed with everything. Because I I did so much in Forbidden, you know. It was my life. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So... I was freaking out and, and just like, I remember just, you know, talking to my wife before she was, we were married, I was talking to her on the phone. I'm like, I just, this is freaking me out. You know, like I have a lot of anxiety I've never had before. And she's just like, I'll toughen up buttercup. She's like, you'll be fine. She's like, just do your thing. You'll go in there and learn the songs. So that's what I did. We finished the demo. I showed up the next day. They're setting up the gear. You know, the first thing he says is, all right, dude. He's like, just let's set up your stuff and I'll show you the riffs. So that was the beginning of that whole, you know, it was, it was, a, it was my first time I ever really sat in and did anything other than my own thing. It was the first time I really sat down and learned other people's songs in detail. Right. But what he did and what I learned, and this is how I became such good friends with all those guys after that, is because we were all kind of on the same level. Um... And there was nobody talking down to each other. There was nobody. It was just a really easy relationship. And to this day, you know, like Gene and myself are such good friends. And, and even Steve DiGiorgio, like there's a lot of love there. Mm. And But what I learned about Death's Material was that it was much easier to play than Forbidden Stuff. Much easier. But the way he writes it makes it sound so crazy complex so that's part of his genius and well, the riffs themselves aren't that complex but it's his arrangements yeah his, is, well that's where the complexity that no you think but well here's the key what he said was learn this riff and luckily i can learn a riff quick uh-huh. play it four times unless i tell you otherwise and that's how it does it so it's really what made his stuff complex was the way that the drums and the bass worked around it and okay. the riffs were just powerful 
relatively simple. There were some hard ones here and there, but relatively simple and just easy on the ears, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I learned a lot about the power of, it doesn't have to look cool to play it. It just has to sound cool to hear it. Mm-hmm. And and at that point in Forbidden, a lot of the things I was writing and all the way to the end, I still did it, you know, like a lot of that stuff is incredibly hard to play and super involved and it looks crazy when you're watching it. And Def, I, I learned about restraint. That was my first time I'd ever really understood just the power of simplicity. Even You can make simple sound hard, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was a really great experience, uh, just that. And so, and, but there was no time for me to sit around and learn the leads or anything. And he's like, dude, I don't even want you to. He's like, just do your thing. He's all, just let the metal flow and, you know, improvise. I'm like, really? So I did. And, uh, you know, once the tour began, it was all about, from the second we landed, it was about where's the coffee, where's the weed. <laughs> and nobody drank a drop of alcohol. I think Steve Georgia one night did a beer thing with dinner. And it was like towards the end of the whole thing. And everybody was just basically drinking coffee and smoking pot. And that was, or hash or whatever, because it was, it was Europe. And it was back in the days where you couldn't get everything so easy. Right. So you had to get rid of it when you got to every border. Okay. Yeah. You're eating it or throwing it out the window. Like all this giant experiences. But that was where Gene Hoagland really started smoking. And he had smoked a little bit before that, but that was where he really like, our smoking culture began. Okay. Chuck was way, already way into it. And so was Steve. But, and I guess I was too, but I know Gene really got turned on to it. So the whole tour was fun. There was never a disparaging moment. You know, um, and you knew it was going to be a one-off. No, well, I mean, I had intended that. That's the other thing. They asked me. They asked me. Chuck had took me aside and said, "Can you continue? And you know, maybe we'll take this further and write a record." And I go, "Fuck, dude!" Like, I was so dedicated and loyal to the Forbidden guys, yeah. even though at the time a couple of them were pretty pissed I was doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, they took it because everyone back then. I don't know when your kids like, you tend to think. Anything is everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, betrayal is, like, easy to imagine. But to me, I, Forbidden was my life. It was, you know, the people that had come in and out of the band, a lot of them hold on to that time very dearly. But that was my life. You know, like, it was a it was a section in time for them. It was my fucking life. So I wasn't going to leave. That. Right. Yeah. And for better or for worse, you know, the, not saying that that was like I was right about it I made a lot of mistakes I took I turned down a lot of different offers of cool things and for forbidden and I just told him I said look man I mean this has been great but I love my band I think Russ is one of the greatest singers on earth you know nothing against him Chuck didn't even like singing death metal and Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard that like he really got bored with it and that's why he did control denied and he loved melodic you know, metal, progressive metal, power metal. He was a fan of anything metal. And that was obvious. I mean, yeah. Especially the later death records. Yeah. And then Control Denied, for sure. Yeah, and good stuff, you know. But I I got little indications here and there that his head might have been not quite right a few times, just talking about other people. Okay. You know, like, I didn't know he was ill. I didn't know he had any kind of you know, cancer. I mean, I don't think nobody did actually, but it kind of all made sense later, like how he would consume on things. And, and, you know, it might've 
had more to do with what was going on inside of his brain and, and the disease, or the, actually this cancer, you know. It might have more to do with that than anything else. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, nobody knows. We all speculate. But to the very end, um, I considered him, uh, you know, an innovator, which everybody does, one of the greatest uh, riff writers that's ever played metal, um, relatively humble, you know. Um, I mean, I guess I never had a bad thing to say, you know, but it's funny because other people that played I might have been the only guy that ever joined that band for a short amount of time or any time that walked away and said nothing negative about the guy yeah uh-huh. and which is weird for me you know because I tend to if someone does something I'll say it you know <laughs> yeah and, and and you know he had the same feelings towards me and I and when I was young I was very uh, very arrogant and I said it did a lot of things I, I totally regret but in that situation, in that band, there was no need for any posturing, or it was just an easy thing. Andrew it was just so chill, and I, I really look back at that time with a, a fondness. I think about what could have been, but I know I did make the right decision, you know, because Forbidden would have definitely, most certainly, broke up. Right. There was there was no really there was no continuing that band without me. Yeah. Just because the sum of the parts weren't really the go getter types. So you don't have regrets about that decision? Not big ones, no. Minor ones, just like, yeah, that would have been fun. Right. You know, but it would have ended Forbidden, and then we would have not put out Distortion, we would have not put out Green, we would have not put out Omega Wave later. Right. And I, Which I think, you know, regardless of commercial success or lack thereof, they, those, those, those records all stand. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that they reflect us, and I think they reflect uh, lyrically a lot of cool things, you know. So I'm glad I got them out of the way. It's just my, I don't have the most successful chapters, but I, you know, they're, they're my chapters. So you got to live with them. Well, but they're all part of your, I mean, they're all part of this legacy that you're, that you've created and that you're continuing to create. And Tr- legacy, translation, getting old. <laughs> well, we all are, aren't we? It's all relative. You also mentioned last time um, that... Rick, Rick Rubin had expressed interest in Forbidden at a certain point, and Debbie kind of put the kibosh on that, and there were a lot of feelings towards Debbie when that came out. Yeah, there were. Um, but then your path crossed with Rick's again later, and so I'm interested to hear more about that, what that was about. Well, the entire Man May God experience, I, I, I got to go back into like the end of Forbidden and getting into this because I don't think we touched on that at all. We, we got into the very beginning of Man May God. Yeah, let's go back a little bit because a lot happened before we got to Rick and it was cool stuff. Um, but I, I think I talked about uh, how we, you know, I came to the, like bail from the band or basically say I want to end the band at this point because it was going, it was going nowhere. Right. You know, there was just no, I wanted to try something new. So, Man May God was a complete experiment at that point, and I didn't have any real specific ideas. We you know, obviously, I talked about a lot of this, a little of this. You know, Matt and and Steve Jacobs came along with me. Aru Luster uh, wanted to, he was dying to do something new, so he begged me to join. I found Mike Sullivan, who was the singer of Level. If you remember Level, mm-hmm. uh, he was a real bright, genius heroin addict. Yeah. So there was a problem. I thought I could change him. That was funny. So 
you, know, you can't change a heroin addict. That's the lesson, kids. They change themselves or they don't change at all. But, um, but it was really creative time. And there was no limitations. I just wanted to write. I wanted to merge beauty and ugly as much as I could. I was really into Radiohead at that point. Right. The Benz was making a big impact on my life, you know. Johnny Greenwood, I still think, is one of my favorite living guitar player slash whatever you instrumentalist. So he made a big impact on me. I you know, I'm not a trendy guy, but when something's great I definitely go, Wow, that's I wish I could you know. So it, it, it affected me to be brave. And I started a whole blazed a new path with that band and people would just come see us and be like whoa I don't know what that was mm -hmm. you know but some of those shows were it was like anything that's really artistic some of them were really fucking amazing and other ones were like that just fell flat because the singer just couldn't relate and you know Mike had his hots and colds but he hated writing lyrics he would just write sounds and his if you actually queued up his vocals a lot of times you'd be like what did you say he's all I was in the moment like what about your horse shit? But I used to tell people we were finger painting with shit. You know, I was like, and sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it wasn't. But I'm glad for all that experience, dude, because that's that prepared me. One of the things Mike said to me, Mike Sullivan, the singer, one time I had written something I loved and he just didn't know what to do with it, right? He was completely, you know, not, not that he was, you know, stalemated. He just wouldn't do anything. And I go, dude, but this is great. And I knew it was great. And he goes, yeah, it probably is, but there's a million great riffs behind it, so just come up with another one. Mm. And I thought to myself, motherfucker, you just told me exactly the key to my fucking... <laughs> he gave me the key to my future moving forward. And he was right. And so now I don't hold on to things as tight. Okay, yeah. Like, sure, this is good for the moment, but if it's not inspiring everybody around you, you better move on quick. It's okay you to know? let it go. Right. Let it go, move move on to the next thing. Right. You know, don't be so derivative. And so that started that whole thing with me. And then, you know, of course it was going to crumble. And it did crumble. And we got offered a show to play. It was the year... It was the end of 1999. We got offered to play with Merv, direct support at Slim's. All right. And I knew that Mike was off MIA. And we agreed to do the show. And he took off. Like, we are going to fire him. And we and I didn't tell anyone at Merv what was going to happen, right? So this is all getting to Rick Rubin, but so I didn't tell anyone what was going to happen. And and then uh, Jeff Gomes, who's a really good friend of mine, who plays in Merv, calls me. He's like, "Dude, I hear your singer's not around." He's like, "What the fuck? What what are you guys fucking doing?" I'm like, "Well, we were going to put a you know, I had this cardboard cut out of Captain Kirk. We were going to put it up on stage with a sign <laughs> around his neck saying singer wanted.' You know, he's like, "No," and literally like that later that day, Mike calls me he's like hey he's like it was always start with a hey i'm like dude where the fuck you been he's like, let's not talk about that do you still want to play that show i'm like yeah we're gonna play that show so he agreed to play the show he came to practice the night before it was good um we did the show it was good and then right after the show when he was feeling so good about himself i said hey dude you know yeah, I said, you know, this is this is not happening again. That's it. I don't really need to be hearing that right now. I'm like, it's the only time you're going to hear it. So we're not going to talk about it again. It was a nice run, you know. So that Enter Pan, Enter the Singer, uh, we put an ad out. 
or actually he had put an ad out uh, in BAM that said something to the effect of looking for a band with the power of tool diversity of Led Zeppelin or looking for musicians with power. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And ambitious. You know, yeah, somebody had sent me a... Uh, a fr- yeah, was a friend of mine, Gary Metrovich, had sent me that ad and said, dude, this guy, you know, it, you should check him out. So I remember calling, leaving him a message, and I was like chewing broccoli, and I left him this long message, yeah, dude, blah, blah, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then I never heard back from him. And then I was like... Call him back again about a week later. Well, dude, I left you this message. My number is blah, 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 blah. Then he calls me back. He's all, oh, yeah, dude, I thought you were a kook because you didn't leave me your number last time. <laughs> so probably like, oh, video. fuck. You know, like, <laughs> all right. So anyway, so he came down to practice. Uh, and just when he opened his mouth, and he showed, he played us a tape of what he did. When he opened his mouth, there was a tone and a quality that came out of that fucking voice that nobody in the Bay Area mm. had since probably the 70s or something. It was like, he's he was special. Um, and so from the second that we played his stuff, you know, anything he did, because my buddy Eric Kretz from Stunt Table Pilots produced a demo with Mike that never got released, and he was way into the whole Mike thing because he had to deal with Scott Weiland, so he knew what it's like to deal with somebody that creative as a heroin addict. But when we got panned, he's like, dude, this guy is, I mean, he's something else. So, you know, we did a couple demos. He showed a lot of guts at that point. He showed, you know, but he also showed difficult, like, he wasn't necessarily willing to, what he thought, compromise on certain things. Because his way he viewed the world was like Maynard was his God. And Maynard wouldn't do this. Like, But not everyone's Maynard and could be painted blue back behind the drummer and sure. backlit and mysterious you know he wasn't that mysterious but he was that talented he was super talented so we wrote all these amazing songs and we did one demo with Kratz that was incredible and then we said well we got all these new songs and then oh then uh, then then Brian Dobbs who was working with Metallica at the plant heard the demo through the wall because our, another guy Chris Roberts was playing it and Chris, you know, he's like, "What's this?" And he told him, "He said, I'd love to produce this band." So Brian made a conscious effort to like maneuver to get us into the plant and record us basically for free. And we did that. And uh, Cole Gill, who was managing us at the time, one of my good friends, sent those demos out to everybody, and one of them made it into a stack over to Rick Rubin. And they're one of the last, even how many years ago is that now? What are we looking at? 2000, 2001. Okay. 2001, this is 2000, yeah, we've done stuff in 2000, we built up a pretty good following quickly, and then those that demo was out there in 2001. It was a day when people stopped listening to as much unsolicited music. Mm-hmm. But Rick would do it with his partner in crime, who I'll get to in a minute, but he would do it every week. They would take a stack, and they would just listen to it. So Listen to it cold. They would listen to yeah. it cold, and our demo rocked their socks off. It had all the songs, a bunch of songs that were on the record, some that didn't make it on the record. It's like eight songs, two different demos. We put them all together on a CD. And Rick was like, I really want this band. So he sent, we got a message saying that this guy from America wanted to see us over at Jackson Street where we were rehearsing in this magical room we had where Faith No More wrote Angel Dust. And mm. it was this great room um, where we just wrote songs like fucking one a day, two a day, you know, 
it was insane how much music we were writing because that whole philosophy that I was talking about, we were just boom, boom, boom. Right. Penn was a genius. He wrote great lyrics, brilliant voice. You know, the James Walker who plays with me now was playing bass. And uh, oh, so Matt was out of the picture. Matt was out of the picture. And Steve Jacobs was there. So yeah, so James was great. You know, like the, the, the whole thing was it was just it truly was probably the greatest band until what I'm doing now that I've ever because mm. just because the chemistry was so good and that's rare to come by right so we hear that he wants to come see us and we're like well because we knew we, it's it's weird Andrew when you know you're on to something when you really know you're on to something you don't need to really try too hard it becomes like we'll see you know, like let's see what what is what is American recordings done since the Black Crows that really blows our minds. Mm-hmm. Where are they at now? That was our attitude. Send the guy, whatever. So actually, that's I mean that's a pretty valid point. I mean their their heyday had been well, you know a decade before. Well, they they did have System of a Down. Okay, right. So they were killing it. I'm sure there are other things I'm just not thinking about. But, you know, there's a whole... there's Dude, there's so many... We're not even going to go into all that because that could be a whole... Sure, yeah. So much shit happened from this moment on. So we sit there at our rehearsal joint just kind of like waiting for this guy to show up and then we got to knock at the door and there's this guy who comes in like in a suit and like a a hat, like a a limo hat, right? He's all, is this uh, where that band Man Made God's playing? I'm like, yeah, he's all, okay, well, I just want to tell you right now, something great is going to happen in here tonight. <laughs> We're like, like, what? He's like, I'm the limo driver for the guy that's coming to see you, and I'm just going to tell you right now, something wonderful is going to happen in this room. We're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then Dino Paredes comes walking in, who's Rick Rubin's right-hand man. Uh-huh. Trippy dude. Trippy dude highly intelligent obviously Rick keeps him around for a reason intuitive you know like walks in with a Blackberry like mid typing like with the keys on it the old Blackberry yeah. you know looking super important yeah look, all wearing all in, black he comes in you know yeah. black buttoned up to the neck yeah, yeah. It's real fit turns out he's vegan and all this shit before people were vegan <laughs> but yeah He's all, hey, hey, guys. Hey, guys. He's all, yeah, we're really excited here. We're really, we're, me and Rick, you know, but it's all him. Yeah. So we're really excited here. What do you got? Boom. Flurried on him. Fucking killed it. Nothing was bad. He was just typing away. So you need to see the excitement. Just looking up. It's like, uh. So by the end of practice, he goes, hey, here's what we're going to do. He's all, I want you to get all your gear ready to go. And we're going to fly you to L.A. in two days. I'm like, what? He's like, Rick wants to see you in L.A. So like, get everything you guys want to bring with you and fly it. So they fucking flew every piece of gear that we wanted besides cabinets down there. Mm. The drums, the heads, the guitars. We're like, well, this is fucking stupid. We can just rent shit, you know? Like, So we go in and uh, we load into a studio. We had Kretz come down and meet us because he was a real big help in, in my life good friend big champion so we set up all this shit and we eat some Thai food while we're waiting this is all getting now we're getting to Rick Rubin now we're getting to Rick Rubin <laughs> so we set up we eat some Thai food we warm up a couple songs our drummer says uh oh and he disappears to the bathroom in walks Rick 
He's like, hey guys, he has his two assistants with him. I can't remember if his dogs were with him at the time. He had these dreadlock dogs. But they were all, everyone walks in, he's like, yeah, really excited to see you. I'm like, he's really super chill. Like, he wasn't wearing a fur coat, you know. He's like, you know, he might have been wearing, like, sweatpants and, and, a, and a torn-up shirt. I mean, that's what he used to walk around in all the time. He wasn't laying on the ground or anything. That came later. Okay. Right. That came later. There was a lot of laying around. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, man, so we're like, oh, fucking killers. So I was like, when are we going to get started? We're like, well, our drummer's in the bathroom right now. And then he looks across the room, he's all... Hey, what are you doing here? Eric Kretz is over there. He's like, I'm here for these guys. So they're about to peel the paint off the motherfucking walls. And Rick's all, that's what I like to hear. Let's get going. Knock, knock, knock. Steve, you okay? Ugh. Knock, knock, knock. Steve, you okay? Ugh. Almost a half an hour in the bathroom while we're sitting there waiting. Wow. So already, the clock is ticking. We're like, fuck, Steve. Fuck. He comes out of the bathroom, he's all, bad tie. Bad tie, he's all sweating. His fucking face looks green. I'm like, you gonna be all right to play? He's all, well, I guess I got to. You know, so I was like, oh. But we do it, and we were good. And But I just knew at that moment that Steve already started behind the eight ball in Rick Rubin's mind. Right. We played, it was fucking killer. We ripped on a bunch of songs, you know. It was, it was almost as good as what we did the other night, you know. Like, we were just like, it was, it was. You could see the magic was there. There was something there. And then we went out and talked after we were done, and that was what I go back to the thing I said in the other interview. I go, hey Rick, I'm like, you know, I was in that band Forbidden. He's like, were you? So like, yeah, yeah. I wanted to sign you guys. Your manager he said <laughs> no. I'm like, yeah. You just verified the story. There you go. You know that it was that was like. That was a moment where you knew it was real. Like, oh yeah, I wonder what would have happened. So there's not a regret on my part. There's like a what if. Like, right. What if right. we are right. twisted in the form would have been something different and Rick had done it. And what would've ifs been... are better than regrets. Yeah. Yeah. They are better. I don't know. You know, I don't I don't really regret too much. Or... Yeah. What ifs are definitely interesting. So that was the beginning of our relationship with him. Um, and I just told him I was standing there and I go. I go, you know, I wasn't really too sure about your label, to be honest with you. Just because I didn't know what you'd really done of relevance since, you know, these certain albums. No knock on you, your work. I love your work. I love a lot of the bands you've signed. I said, but you guys kind of need us as much as we would need you. And he's all, I agree. He goes, you know what you remind me of? I'm like, who? He's like, Gene Simmons. I'm like, <laughs> why? I was wearing my Gene Simmons shirt. I'm like, why? Because the shirt he's all... No, you talk a lot like him. He's like, it's not the bad things, but the good, the good things. He's like, you got that kind of person. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I don't know if that's a backhanded compliment or yeah, that's that you're an asshole. But, yeah, you know, a lot to untangle with the compliment. Yeah, but you're, I'm looking around. You got a lot of kiss books, so you probably have a lot of feelings. Kiss about everywhere that. in this house. But you know, so we got along. Like I got along with Rick Rubin really well. You know, I said uh, we should just get this done. I'm like, fuck it, we can just end this. Just get your attorneys on it. So we did. And we got it done quick. And we got a fucking huge record deal. Like, it was the end of the big record deals. You know? Yeah. You know, it was a lot of money. And so that whole experience starting there kind of fucked our heads up. Because that was when our singer kind of went, well, this is easy. Mm. 
because he walked into a band that was already together, mm -hmm. that already had songs together, and he made them better. But there was already a thing, and then it was like, boom, it's all just going to snowball like this for me the rest of my life. And from the start, when we went in the studio, you know, we did a lot of pre-production, man. And, and Rick just did not like Brian Joseph Dobbs. He did not. Okay. It wasn't a. It wasn't as personal as was a personal like his personality. Like he just thought he was too Canadian, <laughs> meaning too reserved, too laid back, too anal. Didn't know how to fucking pull out the best performances. Didn't know the language to make people inspired. You know, which is all. Was all kind of true. Brian was a great engineer working with Metallica and worked with Bob Rock for years. Got to start with that whole thing. Could get tones for days. But as far as the language to like fire you up, mm -hmm. I did that. Or Rick did that. Nobody else did that in the studio. He'd say, uh, he, like, Brian was great. He was a great guy, great good friend. I really loved him. But he would say things like, oh, yeah, guys, we need a little more toot on that. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's not exactly a direct line into how to tap into your inner fucking <laughs> to peel the paint where's the fucking animal yeah. you know he didn't really know how to do that so Rick had a huge problem with him so everything we did from that point on with Rick Rubin and with Brian Dobbs was like it was like a juxtapose where they were just constantly yeah. like not agreeing with each other and we were in the middle and I'll never forget the day it wasn't uh, Brian he was aiming at he was aiming at our drummer Steve Jacobs but we'd done all these demos we, you know, Steve was a really busy Tom oriented, you know, lots of tribal stuff. Mm -hmm. And then Rick just looks at him because we went to his house a lot. To Rick's like people, house. Rick's house. Beautiful house, you know, lots of books, lots of metaphysical books, lots of religious books, lots of, like, he, it was like he was a one stop shop for all philosophies. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I always call him the, you know, he's like the, the Buddha Jew. You know, mm. way more Buddhism than Jew, but mm -hmm. still was born a Jew. So right. he was one of those guys. Hollywood, all the way. So he lived way up on the hill. But we're sitting there, we're listening to the stuff, and he just stops it, and he he looks right at Steve, our drummer, and, he, and you guys can't see this at home, but he go, but he goes Steve, and he grabs, he grabs his nose, like plugging his nose. He goes and he goes metal bad. He's all bad, like stinky. He's like, huh? He's like, meaning, you're a great drummer, but you're playing these songs like they're metal. These are big rock songs. You need space. Mm. You're going to have to pull back a lot. And as a consequence, Steve shut down. And he was shut down for years after that. Wow. Because he felt like he just got his nuts clipped. Okay. He felt like, oh. And so when he went in the studio to record the record, he was just like, kind of just going through the motions. And a lot of things, you know, change after your drummer changes the drum beat. Then all the bass lines, which were super involved, the James Road had to change. So their shit changed. Rick always told me, he said, do everything you do. What you're doing is great. Just do what you do. But these drums and bass parts have got to change. So they had a real attitude about it. And, uh, you know. What did you think of that? What did I think? Yeah. I think Rick was right. I do. I you think mean the direction that he wanted these guys to go in or, or the the stylistic changes he wanted them to make were appropriate. Absolutely. It and here's why if those weren't the guys here's, then to do it. Here's why. You gotta take you gotta take yourself out of a situation sometimes for, right. for I mean, as an artist you want to do exactly what you want to do. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about writing great songs and writing good songs, if you want to write prog songs, you gotta decide what you want to do. The thing was our choruses and the songs we wrote 
deserved to be honed in and made into fucking... I mean, they were killer fucking songs, man. That album should have done great. That's a whole different subject, but it was it was on the brink of being like the next everything. And those choruses deserved to not be cluttered. Mm-hmm. The verses deserved to be not be cluttered. And so he learned how to take... You know, he showed us how to take the clutter out because they were cluttered because we had so much metal in our backgrounds. Mm. The end result was great, but just the, to get there, dude, yeah. from from the moment we started pre-production to the moment that album came out was almost two years. Wow. We were writing and demoing that record. And it, by the way, footnote, when Rick heard us and saw us, he had the idea to put Chris Cornell together with Rage Against the Machine to see what would happen. So he basically get put, introduced them to each, to each other as a band. They all knew each other. He said, you guys got to do this because I saw this other band and it's a very similar thing to what I think you guys would do. Mm-hmm. He basically made Audio Slave around Man Made God, mm. just as an idea. The inspiration came. Inspiration, and they started and finished their record <laughs> faster. They they wrote it in the in the studio that we were yeah. doing our pre production in, and we're in the studio weeks later and had the fucking record out way before our album came out. So when our album came out, people were like, "You guys are like Audio Slave." Mm. We're like. We weren't, but his voice had that similar timbre like Chris Cornell at points, you know. So people are like, you guys are doing that? I'm like, motherfucker. You know, Tom Morella was way into our album. Like, I don't know about the other guys, but I knew Tom was. And You were happy with the record? Yeah, I was fucking stoked about it, but it took forever to come out. Right. Was it the same, ultimately the same band? I mean, the same drummer, same bass? Yeah, we all stuck Every- together through okay. the entire thing until we broke up. Okay. And we toured with everybody for like a year. They had us touring the bands before the album came out. You know, there's a lot of different stories. But let's just say, let's just fast forward to this. With all the managers that wanted to manage, we ended up getting managed by Doug Goldstein, who did Guns N' Roses. Okay. And that should have been great. But Doug scared Rick because of the stories mm-hmm. about hanging people out of the windows. and Like, you know, the, the doing it the old school way. And so he would just shut Doug out. So we got ended up ended up getting bought out by Rick Sales, where we didn't even want to be managed by Rick Sales at that time. Later on, I think Rick was cool. Actually, I actually realized how much cooler he was. But our singer just resisted everything, every turn, everything the label tried to do. When we got signed to American, it was Warner and CBS that were the parent company. Then, as we were doing the record, it was Island, Def Jam bought it out, and so. Like, it all, the whole thing had changed. Like, everything, where we started, when we started, the bands, you know, who was in charge. It was Lee Arcone when we started, then it was L.A. Reed when we were finishing. And it was like all this industry shenanigans were going on that had nothing to do with us, but they affected us, and they pushed our album back, and they pushed our album back, and they pushed our album back. And then our singer was just done with it, and he goes, you know, if they're not going to release our album soon, fuck this. So they go, you really want your album out that soon? We aren't even be able. We kept pushing it back. We we put out a hundred thousand stickers that had one date on it, mm. and then they said, well, we can't put it out now because of all these changes, and like so people went to buy the record that day and it wasn't fucking there. Right. So, pants like our pants singer pants says, I fucking can't do it like that. We got to release this soon so that you really want it out without us properly setting it up. And we just backed this play. We're like, yeah, we need it out. So they did. But not as many people knew. So when it came out, it had only sold, I don't know, 5,000 copies the first week, which is good now. Now? That'd be great. Be you know, back then, it was like, 
we expected to chart. Yeah. Because when we would have if the album would have came out, because we were on tour, our single was like number one on active radio, mm-hmm. and that Safe Passion song was doing really well. So, what tours did you do? They started us off with Murder Dolls, which was weird. Okay. This is all way before the album came out. We were out with Murder Dolls, but then they put us out with bands like Taproot and Saliva and okay. like all the Breaking Benjamin, all these bands that were like way safer than us. Yeah, right. We were like a real. We were way more. Uh, what's that band um, from L.A. that's so big now? The rock band. They're really good. They opened up for Sabbath oh. on their entire tour. Right. You know what I'm talking about? We were way more that. But anyway, we were a, we were a little ahead of our time. Yeah. Because all the other things were active rock. And we were not. We were like classic rock with a heavy metal guitar player. And that was kind of the thing. And so Rick really gravitated towards me and Pan. And uh, it's all he cared about. In his contract, he wrote it in that we were the only key members. And right. they wouldn't do the deal any other way. Okay. So this all caused a lot of rifts and resentment and doubt. And yeah. There's a ton of things. You start with this grandiose, beautiful thing, and then it turns out to be like squeezed into its essence is lost, and it's just become like a, a struggle, and that's what happened with us. To sum it all up, I ended it not by wanting to end the whole band, but by thinking we need got to have a new singer because this isn't going to work with mm-hmm. you. So that's when Tim Narducci who I started Spiral Arms with, was kind of introduced into the mix as a possible replacement. And I talked to Tim, who was a huge Man May God fan. He was in Systematic, who had success, but they were very limited. They were very limited. They were, they were considered new metal. And I felt like he was better than that. So I was excited. I said, well, here we can do this. And I told the label, I'm like, I got a singer. And they're like, uh, who is it? So essentially, I... Pan did one last thing, which I don't need to get into, but he did one last thing, and I told the guys, look, man, it's never going to go anywhere with him because he's always going to sabotage it. Sadly, he's great, but we know that this is never going to go anywhere with him. So I told the label that, I, you know, I'm going to do this. We're going to demo with, with Tim Narducci and continue as Man May God with him. And Rick took one listen to systematic stuff and said... I'm not feeling that. Like when you're, you so know, Craig, when you're ready to get back together with Pan, mm. you let me know. And then I'd sent them demos and then they just reaffirmed it and said, yeah, he's okay. And I never told Tim. I never told him. I just, I didn't want to crush him with that. I just felt like it wasn't really fair to him and maybe they had a prejudice just because he was in a new metal band in their eyes or whatever. But, you know, Tim was a rock and roll guy. I thought he would have been really good. But we decided to, you know, I just told him that they're not going to resign us. Maybe we should just start a new band name, and then then he came up with Spiral Arms, and that's where that began. So there's, all, I mean, there's so much that happened between all that. Sure. I think it becomes like not as interesting just because the history, what the band should have been huge, so it becomes like almost famous. It literally becomes like the movie Almost Famous, which I think that also kind of reflects in, in Spiral Arms too. There's like some of that. It's you know what what should what could have been a, a fascinating chapter in multiple albums by now. We could have been signed and dropped five different times by now. You know, right, it's like, right. and you don't get your feelings hurt when you're dropped anymore because you go, that's just the way this industry is. Right. You know, nowadays I get it. You know, for the last many years I've understood how this actually works. And back then I used to think things were you know handed to you. Well, it's so unstable. It is. But so. when you're in the thick of it, you know, never having been in the thick of it, I have you know no perspective on it. So when you're in the thick of it. And your life is wrapped up in it. Uh, you're depending on it. It was pretty wrapped up. Yeah. We, you know, there was a lot of money involved. The album ended up costing almost 
$900,000 by the time it was done. Because we were living in L.A., renting gear, renting cars. Mm-hmm. You know, just like every, just like living that stupid dream. Like We were the poster child for the, <laughs> the don't give too much money to bands anymore because right. they're going to squander it. And right. that's certainly what happened with us. But what I gathered and gained from that whole experience with Rick Rubin was that he is brilliant, but sometimes he's wrong. And that's okay. But he'll fight for what's wrong as much as he'll fight for what's right. And sometimes he'll get it perfect, and other times he'll miss it. But I really liked him. But I think everyone else in the band at points was like super mad at him. And I just said, man, he's there to help you, man. It's like Mm -hmm. he's literally your sage, and you're just like, no. You have the, the key to the kingdom, and you just turn wrong with every fucking turn. In either in your attitude or whatever. So, you know, I, I I feel like I gained a lot more out of that experience positive than the other guys did. Yeah, and you probably took a lot from it in terms of the experience, in terms of lessons learned, things that you're probably still able to apply to I did. things you're doing now. I did. So this was the early 2000s, right? Yeah, uh, we got signed in 2001. Um, we started recording in summer of 2001. The album didn't come out till summer of 2003. Okay. So specific question then, just in terms of the timeline, you did not play with Forbidden at Thrash the Titans. No, I couldn't because we were making the record that oh. day. Was that something you would have done? Oh, otherwise? dude, I, that's a whole other story. <laughs> and, and what you know, first of all, to be asked by Chuck to do that, I was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. And Thrash the Titans being the, the, the show in August of 2001 that all... You know, a, a larger number of the prominent barrier thrash bands got back together for this one-off thing uh, to support Chuck Billy, who had cancer. And yeah, um, so it was a big event that re reignited the barrier thrash metal scene. It did. It, it really, it really put Death Angel back on the map first. Yeah, right. Because um, they were always the best barrier live band, in my opinion. Just consistent, bringing it. You know, but. uh no, I, I I was I was approached by Chuck and I said, listen, man, you know he knew he knows the grind. I was in the studio making yeah, a record, yeah. and I said, depending on where we're at in the time, and if it's t- my turn to record tracks, I'm I'm not going to be able to go down and rehearse or do anything. If, if but if we're done with something, then I could get out early. But everything kept lagging, so it all lined up to be my turn to record. It was fifteen hundred dollars a day. Uh, I I essentially gave them permission to do it without me. Like my blessing, I guess, would mm-hmm. be more the way. Like they probably would have done it, just because the opportunity was too good with with or without my blessing. But I did, and different guys in the band took it in different ways. Um, you know, Matt completely understood. He was in Man Made God. He was so stoked for us. You know, just Steve Jacobs was with me, uh, but I had talked to Bo Staff about it, and he was in Slayer at the time, and he didn't want to do it without me. Okay. He was very like, he's like, I don't know, dude. He's yeah. Like, so, because cause what happened was when I gave them permission, I talked to Glenn, and Glenn's like... Because Glenn played. Glenn played. And I talked to him on the phone, and he's kind of like shooting me attitude, like, well, we're going to... I'm like, I had this is my ongoing thing with Glenn. Like, <laughs> it's weird, because when you don't have to deal with somebody that doesn't really bother you, like, he doesn't, you know, but he just has a real... You know, he was in the band for a grand total of two and a half years of his life. Mm-hmm. And his take charge attitude with that, it's like, dude, I'll let you do this. You know, I think, but you were not the leader of the band at it's any point. Yeah. But he 
pissed everybody off. Not me from afar because I didn't have to deal with it. I heard more about it afterwards. Yeah. But he pretty much told everyone how it was going to be. Uh, got that guy Jeremy, who played drums with Steve Vai, to play drums while Paul was busy doing stuff with Slayer. Paul said he couldn't be in rehearsal till the end of it all, and he had an attitude about it and basically told Paul not to show up, you know, for a minute and. Then, when Paul did show up, he's like, hey, you know, my drummer's been here working. Mm. He's like, so you're going to have to wait out the first couple songs. I find all this out afterwards, like, holy fuck. You just told the original fucking drummer of Forbidden yeah. to sit on the sideline. This guy that got fired from the band in 1980-fucking-9 <laughs> just told the original drummer that's in Slayer right. to sit on the sidelines and wait it out while this guy that never played in Forbidden, that no one knows who he is, sits in for the first couple songs. And just just that whole process of like, wow, man, you know, it, it, it could have been such a cool vibe. But there, people had an attitude to me about, like, is he too good for this? Because I was busy with making a record. I know Rob was on a European press tour. Yeah, Rob wasn't there. Yeah. So he couldn't go either. So we were the guys that were like, we're just too good. They're too good for this. Like, no. I don't know. I can't speak for Rob, but he was on a press tour, so fuck off. And as far as I go... I wanted to be there. And the day that it happened, I remember finishing up about five or six at night. And uh, my wife was in town. And we're just like, the studio was unbelievably nice. It had a downstairs studio where we recorded. And then on the ground floor was like, you know, a huge area. Just huge. Big kitchen, big, you know, party room or anything like that. But the guy, Dino, shows up from the label and, He's got some bring some chick from the hustler store with him. Like, <laughs> my wife's like, "What's this?" So, I'm just sitting there, and he could see something was wrong. He's like, "What's the matter, man?" I'm all like, "Tonight's that thing that for Chuck Billy, you know." I'm like, "I should really, I should really be there, but I couldn't have been there to rehearse or anything." Yeah, forbidden songs are hard. You just don't show up. And uh, he's all, oh, "Craig, so that's that's small potatoes." Mm. I'm all, "No, it's not." Well, that's my fucking. That's my bro. It's my history. It's not. He's a no. So this is much more meaningful. I'm like, you don't get it. I get it. That's fine. So I felt like really sad about that. I couldn't. Yeah. And I and I remember just like, just the whole next day, just like wondering how it went. You know, like fuck, I should have fucking been there. And of course, everything I heard was like, it was great. There's drama backstage. <laughs> fucking violence was fucking be a dicks to everybody again it was like the old days yeah, you know it was like yeah, yeah you know so I, I was like I missed all that but then Paul talked to me and he said dude fucking Glenn is you know he was so difficult so that's what I missed you yeah. know it was an absolutely epic night and one just one of the best post barrier thrash events yeah. I mean it, it was it was just so much fun and yeah I saw the fans were good except Paul Bailoff was was a disaster but that Paul Bailoff was that was part of the allure of Paul Bailoff. Sometimes most of the time he was a disaster. And that's why he had to be kicked out of the band. We love Paul. Yeah. He was an originator and he was a fucking animal. But he was almost always a disaster. He didn't die long after that. Uh, no, it wasn't. Because when I before that. I even put the album out, was I, I was flying up to see I went to the DNA Lounge Remembrance of Paul. Okay. That while I was doing the Man Made God record still. Okay. So he was close to, his I, brain was... Yeah, I think he died the next, within the year. February. And this was August, I think he yeah, died in February the, the next year. year. Yeah, 
So yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't in his right mind. No. You know, he had a stroke. I mean, didn't have, he had a hemorrhage in his brain, right? And that was that. Yeah, that's what. From meth. That's what did it. Come on, epic way for Paul to go though. <laughs> I love that guy. He was always so cool to me. But um, yeah. So you know, I missed out on that. And yeah. Let's just say that, that that is a regret. Let's put that in the regret file. I wish I could have been there. But it's interesting then you were totally involved with Man Man God at that point. You guys, I mean, you had your future in front of you, you were recording your record, doing this this thing that you believed in 100%. The next time that, that there was sort of a Bay Area thrash event where people came from all over was the, uh, the screening of the Get Thrash document. Mm. I know you were at that. I was mm-hmm. at that. And I saw no, you no. there. Yeah. And I think that I've heard since then that that was one of the things that inspired you to consider giving Forbidden another go. Well, Paul, had, Paul, yeah, it was. And Paul had said it a bunch of times. He said, we should do this. You know, people will come see us. And it was always my intention to do it with Paul again, eventually, if it ever, the opportunity ever arise, arose. Bostaff. Bostaff. Yeah, Paul would always talk about how people everywhere he goes, yeah. you know, Forbidden fans, they still are, dude. You'd be surprised. You know, we were supposed to be in that movie a bunch, but I couldn't make it to A, the interview that he wanted mm. to do. We were in a lot of, of clips. There's yeah. a lot of clips yeah. of us in there. Yeah. One of the most clipped bands in that thing, but we weren't interviewed. And uh, But I'd talked to the guy, uh, Rick Ernst, for a while beforehand, and, you know, we, we'd put there our thoughts together on things, and he's like, you really got to go to this dude. He's like, you got to be there. I'm like, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll go check it out. So I kind of went. I went with my wife again. We didn't check it out, and... I see everybody out in front. It's all the guys, you know, I hadn't seen in a while. All the guys I love, and you know, Zet Zetros takes me. He's like, "Come sit with us, man. Mm-hmm. He's like, Come sit with us." So we sit down, and uh, the whole movie, he's like tapping me on my legs. All that's what it's all about, bro. Like, that's what it is. And I, I'm like, "Oh, you know," I mean, the nostalgia came rushing back to me more than it ever had before that, and. I, fi- I finally started to understand our place. Cause I, it's not that I rejected anything. It's not that. I just had to compartmentalize everything. Sure. I just had to put things into perspective. and You know, I didn't want to... I never uh, a person that likes to run over the same old ground. I like to break new ground all the time. And I'm one of the few that's been able to do it and, and has had marginal success in more than just metal. You know? Right. And not many of us get to do that. And when they tried, it usually failed miserably. So I was doing spiral arms. We were, in, you know, deep into our way too many of the year already. What was it, 2007 when that seven, came out? I think the summer of 07. Yeah, so then I said, all right, well, I'll examine it. And uh, I, I reached out to our manager and I said, or for, actually, first thing I did was I, I reached out to Paul the very next day. I said, dude, I think you're right. And then I reached out to Russ, I reached out to Matt, and uh, we were talking to Tim. We are trying to get Tim involved, mm-hmm. and Tim was, you know, on his way to becoming a pilot, like a full-fledged commercial pilot at that time, so he really doesn't sure, you know. But we all agreed to examine it, check it out. I have, you know, our old manager, Gordon McKay, was managing us at the time, and he, so he went and he examined Europe, and he looked at it, and people were making us ridiculous offers. Okay. Just like no way you deserve that much, you know. But it's the first time back, so we agreed to do some European dates the following summer, and then said so we needed a show, a Bay Area show, 
So, you know, we wanted to do, we wanted to do like the Warfield for our first time back or the Fillmore. Because we knew we would have packed one of those two places, you know. But none of those places were interested in having us back. Mm. The amount of money, they didn't want to take a risk on the amount of money okay. it takes to open it. So Death Angel knew we were looking for a show. So they approached us, hey, you know, we know you're looking for a show. You want to play with us? Slim's two nights, they really weren't offering us good money at all. And Slim's wasn't, you have, there's a pecking order at Slim's where you got to earn your way up because <laughs> they will just basically rob you blind for years, you know. I mean, the amount of money that they make compared to any bands is extreme. So we weren't in with Slim's yet. So eventually we had to agree on something. So we agreed to do the two dates. Death Angel helped make up some of the money. Uh, on their on their own back end, which is really cool. We loved those guys. We spent years with them, but our first shows back weren't really as gloriful mm-hmm. as they should have been. And when uh, Testament realized we had all this going on, they needed a drummer, and so they asked Paul. They wanted to get Paul to commit to doing the formation of damnation of damnation before he got too deep with us. So we never even got a rehearsal with Paul at all yeah. Whenever, okay. we were just talking about doing these shows and hadn't done anything yeah. and uh, so I had to figure out what to do and we couldn't get Steve Jacobs because he didn't have a drum set it's like, it was a weird it's like Steve couldn't fly out it was you know and it wouldn't have really been very exciting for people as sad as it is like if you say oh Forbidden's Back with Steve Jacobs on drums it wasn't enough for our first time back right so that's when we talked to Gene. You need the cachet of someone like Paul or Gene. Yeah, Yeah, Gene's favorite thrash metal band was Forbidden. Okay. And still is. So being as good of friends, I said, would you like to do this? We said, fuck yeah. I'll fucking go. When do you need me there? He said, what do you want me, like three, four days before the show? I'm like, no, two weeks. He's like, what? I never rehearsed that much. I'm like, well, we need it, dude. It's not just for you. Uh-huh. It's yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a few warm-up shows with Gene and then did that one. And... uh or the, those two nights, and uh, it was fucking great. You know, it was the beginning of it. But then Gene wasn't going to carry on, so we had to get Mark. And Mark was just going to be a sit-in drummer. Mm-hmm. And all the while, Spiral Arms still existing. Right. Resent ever growing. Ah, okay. So much resent over okay. that. I remember we when we did uh did that first show. Uh, uh, Tim Larducci, the singer, came out, and he was he was there hanging out, and he left before we even played. He didn't even want to. Just couldn't. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Just couldn't. You know, he said couldn't. Say I saw a song, but you know they all acted like they were very supportive at first, and then it became. It's not. It wasn't they all either. It was really, really just him and the bass player. Just it it had built a rift from that moment on where, it was just you know we had Chris Contos at the time too, and originally Chris was telling me you should do this, dude. You should go do that. You need to fucking go back to your roots and then by the time I came home from Europe from that first tour man it was like whoo the forbidden tour for first yeah. forbidden tour in Europe yeah I'd heard that they were mad about an interview I did where I said I might maybe come home and think about writing a riff but I haven't even fucking considered yeah. it I, okay. and I, all I was doing was put dude, to add nauseam to people I was pushing spiral alarms to everybody out there and they're like okay but when are you going to do a forbidden record and I was like eh so that wasn't your initial plan. No. Okay. Dude, I went I went there thinking, you know, and, and Spiral was gaining a lot of traction at that uh-huh. time too. Like uh-huh. we were actually doing a lot of cool shit. And I went out there thinking, well, this is gonna help propel that band and it made everyone in Forbidden mad at me. And then the guys at Spiral Arms were mad at me. Okay. Because Interesting. You know, yeah. nobody wanted to 
you know, they, they couldn't see me spreading myself around like right. that. Like, I, you right. got to commit to one or the other, you know, because ah, most of these people don't really do anything else in music. So, you know, it's like, this was it. This is it. You know, like, you pick a side. And I was like, fuck all of you. I'm like, fuck you. So I come back and then uh, we have a band meeting and I basically get cornered by the Spiral Arms guys, you know, saying, we saw this interview, you said you're going to write a forbidden record. I'm like, you talking about the one where I said I might maybe come back and think about writing a riff? Well, what the fuck is that? Well, you guys are yelling me about this? <laughs> they gave me the fucking riot act, man. It was, wow. I was just sitting, it was at a Chevy's in fucking Dublin. And it, it was like literally probably one of the worst days of my life. Because wow. I couldn't believe I was hearing this. Cause after, a, you know, a month of pushing my band out there. Really pushing us, too. Mm-hmm. And I just remember telling them at the meeting, I go, listen, man. I was on the fence about it, but now you guys have pushed me over. I'm going to fucking start writing a forbidden record now. I'm like, you guys are fucking assholes. Fuck you. You know, and I don't have that feeling towards all of them, but at that moment I was like, I, you know, you, if you were, if you were a betting person and you went all in on a bet and you bet that I was going to do something and you're that wrong, you fucking lost that bet because mm-hmm. they were fucking wrong as fuck. And I, I just, I was never more upset and it was, it went for a few months, you know, where I was like wondering what's going to happen with the band. Are we breaking up? What's going on? The spiral arm's completely done. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I got in a car accident. It was a really bad car accident. And I sent everyone a thing saying, man, i this close to fucking dying. And I was. I was like literally an inch back here mm-hmm. and, and, and a foot over here. And I would have been dead. And if my family was in the car, they would have been dead mm-hmm. for sure. And I didn't hear back from anyone in spiral wow. arms except for Brad, my keyboard player. And no one wrote me. And I was like, fuck, you know. These guys don't give a shit. It's not even about, at that point, about being angry with you as a bandmate. That's about being angry with you as a human being. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, they misread, like, the thing. Because I think that they, you know, looking back at it, I, I and I got to be a little bit more, uh, you know, practical about it all and look back, like, what were <clears> they seeing? And I think what they saw was that I said... I don't go backwards. Uh-huh. I move forwards. Yeah, yeah. And then I agreed to do this thing. And then once I did that, I betrayed what they thought I right. should be doing. Right. So, yeah, you know, I I can understand it, but I don't have to respect it. Uh-huh. You know, I can, I can uh, certainly see how they can build it up in their minds. But, so, you know, at some point... You know, you got to surrender to, like, what's the greater good. And, you know, as I was out there pushing spiral arms, it was working. But when I came home and all that happened, I was like, well, fuck. So, you know, I started writing music with Mark, but not saying he was in the band. And then eventually I said, you know, we were starting to write some good stuff, and he was really syncopated with me. And I said, you know what? This is actually working out. Like, let's demo some of this shit. Right. And we, we eventually did. But before that had happened... I'd reach out to Tim and I said, "Listen, what? I mean, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like, what is? What are you guys even gonna do? You know?" And then he said, "We should probably talk." And you know, and basically, I, I got a meeting with him and we sat down. And I had my kid with me; he was just a, like four years old or something at the time, not even four. You know, <laughs> basically, he said, "Well, he's all. We should try it again. We're much better together than apart, but I have a whole new vision. I have a whole new thing. I think we need to." 
he basically said in so many words, I want to pivot this band to stoner rock. Because mm. we weren't. Spartan Arms was not stoner rock. Mm-hmm. You know, I always called it stoners that rock it at most, you know. But I was like, really? I'm like, well, listen, dude, I'm writing a forbidden record. I am going to do one. If you got great songs, send me the songs. So, you know, I heard what he was doing. I was like, so I was adding things to it to try to pivot it away from that. But at the same time, it had his basis. But it, it, it's like everything had changed. And there was never any point where I felt like the entire time I came back, I always felt like there was just so much resentment there. But for the greater good of music, we did it. Yeah, right. But it's like, it's really like coming back to a marriage where, you know, you, you know, there's already, you've already been sleeping with other people. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. You know, it's just never going to be the same in yeah. that bed again. Yeah, and yeah, it just yeah. kept going on. Really it got worse yeah. and worse yeah. and worse. So did you end up stopping Spiral Arms completely? Well, we did uh, later, it, you know, but to, to make those guys feel, or to make Tim feel involved, I said, hey, why don't I have you record our demo? So he did. You know, he's really good at getting sounds. I was like, he's good at something. Like, great. He's really good at producing with minimal gear, mm-hmm. getting maximum. He's got a great ear. So, was, you know, we did a demo that ended up getting assigned, but he wasn't really understanding what we were doing. Yeah. At no point did he quite get and wrap his head around Forbidden's music. It was always like a little mystery to him, especially when he came to tracking solos and, and uh and, and Steve uh, Smythe stuff. We yeah. got Smythe in the band. I said, I, we should back up to that. He's the right guy to get once we had to let Glenn go uh-huh. the second time. Or is that the third? No, it was the second. Was Glenn in the picture? Never for writing. Okay. but he, Not for that album. He was not. No. Okay. I tried. It's fucking... I thought about this the other day, actually. I was writing shit, and I started... This is, you know, after the accident. I was writing all this stuff, and, and I... I had sent him a couple ideas I had, and I went over. I said, "Well, I'm going to sit down because I was always Glenn. We got to write, dude. We got to sit. I was snap my finger. We got to. Well, we got to write. We got to sit down. We got to fucking put our heads together, dude. All you got to do is really shred. That's all you have to do. And he's like, "Well, you maybe you should come over." So I came over. He's like, "Play me what you got." And he just sat there, and I played him stuff, and he recorded stuff, and I played him stuff, and then he's like, "Well, so I'm thinking we need to be more like Opeth or maybe Meshuggah." I'm like. Listen, dude. Like, we're forbidden. I wrote four albums without you. Mm-hmm. Just shred. And by the time I had left his house that day, he didn't even play one note with me that day. He wouldn't even learn anything. He'd already sent what I did to a couple people and said, I don't know about this. Basically, fucking submarine me before I even <laughs> went, got to my house. Right. And then I had a couple people writing me, so, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, what are you doing, Glenn? What the fuck? This was the same thing that that's, he would do. It's a bad way to start. Yeah, yeah. so basically yeah. that was the end of it. And uh, that's we we got Steve Smythe, who lived in London, but he was so much easier to work okay. with. You know, yeah. it was like, he's brilliant. He sat in for Forbidden 2 with the <clears throat> Clash, you know. He right. did some of he my stuff. So it was perfect guy to come in. You yeah. Know? Perfect guy. So that we wrote that album together. What about, like, going back um, and talking with Russ and Matt at that point? I knew Matt through some professional dealings that he and I had. Um, and so he's actually the guy that when I heard a rumor about Thrash of the Titans, I called him one day at work. And I said, hey, I'm hearing this. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's all happening. And so, you know, years later, you know, he and I are still are still talking. And he told me, he said, you know, I have to make a decision. You know, I've got this great job. 
this great career. Can I let this go? Should I do this? But I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it. And you could tell he was excited. That was when, uh, after Omega Wave was even out, right? Yeah. I think this was before that. Oh, was this like '99 or? No, no, no. This was this was around the Omega Wave time. Yeah, because no, we'd already been on tour for a while, and then he had to make that decision. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I can't remember, but yeah. it was it was within that run of the band. Well, he made the right decision because yeah. ultimately, when it comes to Forbidden, and this is the part, this is where it's it's really tricky, and uh, it's with any band, it's just some of the parts that make the fucking. Mm-hmm you know, the pie, True. whatever, the meal. And with Forbidden, you've got elements of people that are all the original members, that original five, and then you have it. But with, with Russ and with Matt, neither one of them is a take-charge person. And they're both, you know, super cool, amazing people. Like, yeah. Like super sweet people, you know. Matt, to this day, Matt, I'll consider one of my best friends. And Russ, too. But Russ is a hermit. Yeah. So you got to push Russ into doing everything. Okay. Russ isn't going to do it on his own unless there's some motivation for him. So ultimately, with Forbidden, there wasn't enough motivation because he couldn't see that there's enough money being generated. But yet he wouldn't motivate himself enough to put himself in a position where people want to pay you the money to do it. Okay. So there's a catch twenty two. Yeah, right. And it was just like, it was a recurring cycle, and that's ultimately why I ended it the first time because with the, with seeing the way it was going and everything, and the some of the parts, the kind of people that they were. You know, everyone was so different, but none of them were take charge people. So if I wasn't taking charge, they would have been rudderless. Mm-hmm. And that was happening again. So he made the right decision. You know, Matt made the decision that he's got two kids, they're getting ready for college. It was time to set in that motion. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and it was time for me to, I, I, I committed. To, for uh, Spiral Arms even more then and this, the date when I did commit to Spiral Arms more then when he made that decision uh, those guys committed to doing their ZZ Top cover band more it was as an, <laughs> as an answer to me okay. doing Forbidden All they right. was like well we're going to do this because yeah. this makes money and so right then it's like that was when the Apple was completely spoiled that was like basically the, the real once I committed to doing one thing more and they said well we're going to do this more it was just inevitable that it was all going to fucking fall apart in, yeah. in a splintered mess. You know? So was there a, a time then, you got back together, you did your tours, you wrote Omega Wave. I mean, I love that record. and yeah, That was a fucking lot of work. Oh. Mark and I spent, that we wrote most of that record together, and uh, Steve would send us ideas. Matt came up with a couple of pivotal, cool things. He gave me a couple ideas for lyrics that I went with. Yeah. Like Dragging My Dragging Cast. Dragging My Cast. Dragging My Cast is kind of his... Attitude uh-huh. towards everything, right? Right. Right. Like, oh, sera, no mm-hmm. big deal. You know, that's that was my answer to him, just being like, "Fuck it." But yeah, he gave me some good ideas, and uh, yeah, that was a that was a, actually a fun record to write for me and Mark because we spent every day, like two or three days a week, down in the studio, fucking hammering out all the details. And when we recorded it, it was it was just him and I. And we went down to L.A. to Eric Kretz's studio, mm-hmm. the bomb shelter, and did that. And I brought Tim along because I wanted him to feel included in the whole process. Right. The things I did for that guy, <laughs> and, the, and and what I got in return yeah, was not equal out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, come on, bro. He got a lot of jobs off that, too. Okay. He got a lot of jobs off that. So you and, and Russ and Matt, if the three of you were kind of on the same page with being motivated to be there 
and your lives were in the same, were set up in the same way where you felt like you had the freedom to go out and do this, um, do you think Forbidden would have continued? Do you think it still would be going? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, we came to a bridge besides, you know, Matt was saying what he, he had going on. Uh, Mark had to quit the band because he had his shit going on with his family. Yeah. You know, we got Gene sat in for some shows. We got Sasha Horn to play drums, who's great. Out of all the drums we tried out, he's the best. Mm. You know, things were in one way we're still set in. Like we started writing the next record. Okay. I have songs. Right. I have like three, four songs that were finished, that were ready to go, and all this was happening. But uh, when we did the last show in Chile in Santiago, we did the Metal Fest in 2012. And we're our next show after that was supposed to be the what's that huge festival in Germany the biggest Wacken yeah we had Wacken book we turned down Wacken three years in a row okay because they didn't offer enough they finally offered us enough money to just make it so we could do the trip get in there get out not lose anything mm-hmm. and Russ on the plane was pretty hammered and he was just telling me he's like I don't want to do Wacken I don't want to do Wacken. Wacken's going to suck. We're not going to make enough money. I'm going to have to fucking leave work early. This this whole thing. And then, you know, yelling me about doing, or not yelling, but to, you know, berating me about doing another band at the same time. And nobody cares. And fuck all these other bands. And that's all this stuff. And I just said, hey, look, dude, I mean, I know you're, you're hammered. But if you say no to Wacken again, then I got to, like, examine the what am I doing? Right. Because we've already said no to Wacken three times previously because of you. So that was the moment I realized. I told him, I said, hey, dude, I love you. But if you say no to Wacken, I can't keep motivating you. If you don't have self-motivation, to me, that means that this whole thing has run its course. And he goes, nah, dude. So you'll see. We'll be back. You, you know, we'll just, don't, just don't do Wacken. I'm like, no, dude, that's... That's it for me. Mm. If you say no to Wacken, so go home, think about it, get back to me in a couple of days. So I'm like, so what's up with Wacken? He said, no, nah, I don't want to do it. Mm. I said, there it is. Yeah. And he he still says, I, you know, I know you say that, but we'll be back. So I, I basically just, you know, people don't understand. They, And like I tried to explain in this, if, you've, if you heard the part where I said it, it's the sum of the parts. It's not that people, there's not a lot of like, anger or resentment and forbidden it's just the kind of people that we were they all waited for me to do the thing and if I didn't do the thing and if I didn't say what was going to happen there's nothing was going to happen right it's just the kind of people they are and you know when Bostaff was in the band it was driven because Paul was equally as driven and he never gets nearly as much say so in Slayer as he had with me and forbidden sure we got to do that you know we kind of ran that band from the band side together mm-hmm. and when he left I was left to do it and I th- and I, I look back at my life and I should say this and if I didn't say in the other interview I, I do or I don't but I look back and I see a lot of the resentment that was that was built you know between me and every I was the youngest guy in the band mm. since the beginning you know since since Forbidden Evil first started playing in the Stone or the Omni whatever I was the youngest guy in the band so and I, and delegated the band leader not necessarily because I wanted to do it, but because nobody else was going to do it. And I think I said in the other interview, even Rob used to talk about it, like how he wouldn't go talk to anyone in charge, like Wes Robinson or whatever. Like I went and searched that. You would go do all that. 
So I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying this is why people fucking had a problem with me. Mm. Because I was the guy who was doing it, but I was the youngest. And why am I taking orders from this guy? And what the right. fuck? So this turned into like resentments. And that, that really was the pivotal part of the resentment that Tim had. It's like he came into a band that was already moving along. And why am I, you know, at first it was cool. Then why am I, Tim, why am I doing this for him? And he was driving us around. He was driving me and Matt around for years, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until Matt got his license. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, cause I could, but I, what I'm saying is I can understand it now. I get if it was just a different ingredient level or, or different ingredients, maybe it would have been different and maybe somebody else could have taken charge. Maybe, mm-hmm. but because the kind of people that everybody was, it was left in my fucking, the ball was in my court and if I didn't fucking bounce it around, it was just never going to go anywhere. So there was resentment about that and probably people blamed you when things didn't go quite right. Yeah, because, yeah, well, happened. you're in charge. Right. Like, yeah. well, yeah. It was up to you. You know, I don't. don't I don't change the industry. <laughs> you know, you can't. You can't change certain things. You can change others. I look back at when we broke up the first time, and I, you know, I, that's one thing I could say. I, when I decide, enough is enough. It might have been. It might be have been later than it usually should be. Okay. Uh, but with when it came to Forbidden, it was like when they offered us when the label offered us that Man of War tour. I was like, no. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's it for me. I'm gonna fucking. I'm going to figure out what I'm really all about. Right, right. So that might have been early, but I was like, you know, because we never got a tour on Green. You know, that led me to with the whole Rick Rubin experience, sure. which was good and it was positive, and I met a lot of people out of that. Like Sean Bevan, who mixed that album, has become one of my best friends. Okay. So I love Sean. I love, love, love. That guy and his, his wife are amazing. Yeah. So something good comes out of everything. But yeah, no, absolutely. Doors you know, the forbidden and thing of this last time, I can't say it was too early or too late. It's just, it was going to happen. And I didn't, we didn't say we're breaking up. We never, to this day, we never said we're breaking up. But when people ask me, when are you guys, are you guys going to put an album out soon? I'm like, where did you even get that idea? Because mm-hmm. we certainly haven't fucking even talked about all being in the room together. Russ is way retired. Way. And now Matt's playing bass again, which is, makes me happy. Oh, good. Yeah, you see him on Yeah, he sounds that. better than he ever did, to yeah, be honest with you. He sounds like he's well. really motivated yeah. and trying new things. And I yeah. love that. And I love Matt. I, you know. Still, though, it's got to be tough when you're 18, 20, being in a band full-time, going out on tour, living the band life is one thing, but you know, in your 40s and early 50s, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game. It is a whole nother. You better be way into music. Yeah. You know, because it's really about music at this stage. Especially the if party's got, over. Yeah, right. The party's been done for decades for me. I, you know, it's, it's about connecting and expressing and having people that can do that with you. It's it's ironic that I'm back in a band with two guys that I've done that with at, at pretty high levels at different points in my life. You know, with James in the band and with Mark in the band, it's like we've done shit together. We've seen, I've seen the, the best and the worst of those guys already. Mm-hmm. All the skeletons are already out of the closet. Right. You know, we've seen it all. It's, right. You know, you've you seen the warts. You've seen the warts. Warts and all. <laughs> so, um, with... With Dress the Dead, which is your current your current band, and we'll get into kind of what's happening with it now, but Peter Dolving, right, from mm-hmm. The Haunted, I read some years ago that you guys were connected, and I thought, that's really strange. And that kind of, he kind of came and went. Was that with Dress the Dead? Was he the singer in, in this band? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, uh, I was a fan of Dolving for quite a while. I, I liked 
the haunted music a lot. I felt he was lyrically fucking poignant. Mm-hmm. He was like to me. He was a fearless fucking singer that I've always was after at the time. Mm. I was always looking for someone who wasn't afraid to fucking, you know, walk out in the G string. You know what I mean? <laughs> like just fucking be an animal. Just do your thing. You know, do, like because that's just not the type of people I ended up with at any point. Every every singer I had was was very talented and very guarded. All of them. Mm. You know, so Peter was like new, but I got Peter at the end of his whole, like, he was tired, he was physically exhausted, he had ailments with his hips, his spine, you know, he's like, titanium hip and shit. Okay. Like, he's been yeah. through, he thrashed himself on stage, mm-hmm. jumping off of shit and doing all the fucking shit that I admired about him. But it was, what's funny was, I'd seen him at the uh, Slims, at Slims, I took, Contos took me, and he knew the guys in the band, so we all hung out after the show, you know, then I realized how much of Forbidden fans all those guys were. They were, you know, totally fucking adamant. And then Peter walks in and he's like, hey, this is... He's like, hey, Chris. He's like, yeah, this is Craig. He played. He's like, oh, he's like, yeah. He's all, I like what you guys do. He's like, and he goes, I, I wish these guys would write like that. Like, all, <laughs> and, but, but he was just so jovial. And yeah. I was like, I love his energy, man. I loved Peter Dolving. I, I had a... Total fucking, you know, bond with him. Just his personality and mind just worked on that level. And uh, and then I'd follow him on the blabbermouth posts mm-hmm. where he was just get a rise out of people. It would just say, he just knew he was a master of knowing how to fucking piss a red ass off. And I loved it. I was like, this guy's fucking great. So when things were kind of closing out with... Spiral arms, and I knew it was coming to an end. I go, look, dude, my life's about to change, and I'm looking to be fucking brave. And uh, he's like, well, I'm coming to the United States. He's like, I'm, I'm going to be taking another trip to Oregon. He's like, I'll come by with my wife. We'll visit. So we did. We had dinner. Went out with my wife and, and my kid and his wife. We had Indian food and sat down and talked. And he just got over being really sick. He was in South America, and he caught some bug. And, he was like, he thought he was going to die, basically, because he was starving. Like, he couldn't gain any weight. Oh. He'd been through all, it was in the rainforest, you know, okay. right off the coast, but he was still right there. He'd been through a lot. But I played him some stuff, and he's like, I really like this. He's like, I, I really like this. I think I could do something with this. And then he goes home, and after thinking about it, writes me back, he's like, let's do it. He's like, but take it slow, please. Take it slow. <laughs> and I go, all right. So... I'm an old man moving slow. Yeah, he's like, please, just, just, you know. And his wife would write me off the book. He's like, just please take it slow because, yeah. you know, he's physically and mentally, it's, it's exhaustive because he puts so much into the music. So, you know, after I found all the band members, because he didn't know anybody. He didn't know any of these guys. Yeah. And I told him who they were. And then we, I, like, I came up with their name. Oh, what do you think? He's like, that's really fucking cool. So we started putting the pieces together as, like, what it's going to be. And only he and I really knew some riffs, and then the other guys started learning stuff. And then we did, uh, I'm also, are you ready to announce that you're in the band? If so, you know, I'll have a logo made, blah, blah, blah. So we did that. And what it freaked him out, how just putting the logo out and the page blew up so quick. Wow. He, everyone putting me and him together, like, holy shit, he's just like, dude, whoa, he's like, I, I don't know if I could do this. And I go, dude, 
what's up? I'm like, you've already committed. Like, it's just, he's like, it's just such, it seems like such a big announcement all of a sudden. It's everywhere. I'm like, what did you think was going to happen? You didn't build your whole legacy to fucking be, a, <laughs> you know, like a, a footnote. And barely, right. you know, no one cares. Yeah, just ignored. So I calmed him down. He said, all right, all right. So basically he came down, um, he was working on demos of stuff that we were recording, songs that I had written riff-wise previous and sending me stuff and it was pretty okay it was good I mean it was good but I could tell yeah and then I got Rob involved and I said Rob do you know do you want to record this and he and he's like you and Dolving he's like fuck yeah Rob Flynn Flynn. sorry Rob Flynn I'm like yeah I thought you know because he's a good producer Rob is a very good producer and uh I thought he'd be great to record it and he got all excited about it he's like but Peter man He's like, I don't know, dude. He's like, I toured with him. He's like, can you rely on him? Oh, he seems like he's got his shit together now. I don't know. Like, Maybe we'll get a cycle out of him. We'll see. Yeah. And uh, so we get those Death Angel shows. And it's like, okay, now's the time to record. We'll get Peter out here for the shows. We'll record the demo. Yeah. We recorded the music previous, sent it to Peter. He worked on it. He came back. When he got in the studio, he was fucking magic. Mm. Magic like I'd never witnessed before, totally lit up, inspired by the moment, inspired by Rob being there, fucking totally looked up to Rob. Mm. He fucking worked really hard. He took direction. He wrote beautiful fucking parts. He wrote brutal parts, songs that you haven't heard. Like, sure. Couple things, you know, 1969 was one of them. And, uh, and that was just like epic. You're like, this is incredible. But you wonder how people are going to relate to the Swedish guy think, singing this, the story of America, really. And uh, right. But we were all like blown away. And then we did the shows with Death Angel. Those went pretty fucking good. And uh, he was just on top of the world. He was so excited. And we were excited. It was love. Like, the bromance was on. You know, we're just <laughs> all just like, this is going to be the coolest fucking thing any yeah. of us have ever done. This is We can't believe we're here at this age. It's fucking amazing. He goes home. He's like, yeah, man, this is fucking great. I loved every segment. He wrote some really wonderful things. He's like, I love these guys. It's fucking going to be a great band. You guys are going to trip out. And then a couple months later, I'm like, how you doing? He's like, oh, it's so fucking cold out here. He's back in Denmark. He was living in Denmark at the time. He's like, I just fucking hate it out here, man. Just fucking hate it. And then he had a big job uh, online in the medical THC industry where he was going to help do a huge publicity campaign for like a really big medical group not the it was all medicinal Mm -hmm. so he's really excited and then that job fell off fell out like last second and he's like oh this fucking sucks man he's i'm so bummed about this i'm like well you need something to think about and we talked about like okay let's make a plan come back out here he's like can we get a can we get a a a regency at a club for a week so we can iron out our ideas. I'm like, yeah, I could probably do it at Soundwave and just have bring kegs in every night and have, just play for people. He's like, that's great, awesome. So we're all talking. He's listening to the new stuff. We sending him. We're sending him all this new stuff. And literally, I mean, we had a great conversation. Literally, the next day, I woke up and I fucking flipped on uh, my phone and there's a fucking long diatribe from him mm-hmm. talking about how he's so tired. He's like, he's hit the wall. He can't hear music anymore. 
life is kicking his ass. He wants to see his kids. His wife won't let him see his kids. He's totally depressed. He's just fucking, he's like, I've just got to give up on the dream of music. It's just too much for me. I can't do this. And I'm like, on Facebook? Fuck! And Rob writes me, he's like, did Peter just quit on Facebook? So that wasn't even a message to you. No, it's just just he didn't even Facebook. write it to us. He okay. wrote it just in general. Wow. And then and then we wrote him like, dude, well, we get you're going through, but why don't you come to us first? He's all, shit happens. You know, sorry guys, I'm really sorry. He just didn't know how to verbalize to us. He couldn't. Yeah. He right. couldn't really. He couldn't say. But basically, he was so fucking scared of it going well, but being hard, yeah. on him physically and mentally, that he did do the right thing, but the wrong way. And it sounds like it sounds like he just didn't know what to do. It sounds like he was in a bad place. And, he was, and yeah. He was. He's got a lot of mental scars, and I. I but this kind of stuff happens with tortured artists. Uh huh. Yeah. But he's like the ultimate tortured artist. <laughs> you know, he is fucking brilliant, and people don't even know how fucking brilliant he really is. Like you know, I could play you a song that no one, not very few people, have heard in here. Where you go, holy shit! And I probably should when we're done with this. I'll, I'll, I'll play you something. All right. And uh, yeah, it's just fucking nuts how good he was with us. So our expectations were crushed. Our ideas were like, who the fuck is gonna even be able to do anything remotely as good? It was like, oh, oh. Was, the other guys were like, we've been ruined because we just saw the fucking best. Yeah. Because people, whether people know it or not, I don't really care if you agree with it or not. I don't really care if you understand what Peter is capable of, but he was fucking brilliant. And with us, it was a whole new level. If it would have been him 10 years ago, mm -hmm. we could have done all this. Right. But, you know, but it took us a while to get over it, and we, we couldn't find anybody. And, and who we did find was really good, but they weren't good for us. Mm -hmm. You know, they were either good at what they did in their thing. But the fit wasn't. Or they just weren't good enough. Yeah. But and there was a couple that were exceptionally talented. One in particular that we almost settled with, but he really wasn't our kind of thing. We had to kind of like groom him into doing this. But he was willing to go for it, and we all loved each other enough to give it a shot. And then literally, literally, again, I use this word literally because this is all fucking crazy shit. The day that we're going to say, yeah, we'll probably do this. And it, which turns out to be the same day that Mark was going to come in and say, if we're going to do this, I'm probably going to have to step aside because I'm just not feeling that that's the right choice. Oh, okay. It's yeah. not going to you know, work in the long run, in my opinion. Yeah. So if I'm not motivated, you know, Mark was going to basically step aside and say, it's probably you know, nothing personal, but it's just, I get a text from Kayla Dixon, who I didn't know but she got my number through a friend because that friend had sent her music, the stuff we did with Peter, and then said, check this out. So she sat on it for over two months mm. trying to decide if it was something she wanted to do, if she could handle it, if it was, if she could take the ridicule and the trolling that would happen and taking over Peter Dalving's job because she really loved Peter Dalving too. She was like totally blown away by 1969. And I get this text. She's like, hey, it's Kayla Dixon. I, you know, got got your music from a friend. I've been sitting on it for a while. Is there, is there still a chance I can have an audition? And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, I saw her a year ago to the day, two days later. 
play at that show uh, at the Metro with St. Vitus and uh, the Skull. And I just walked in that room. I remember people walking in and telling me, dude, you got to see this singer up there. She's fucking, well, she this, or this she's is fucking with, incredible. Uh, Witch Mountain. Witch Mountain, dude. And, and I walked in and I watched her and I was like, this, and I literally fucking remember thinking, this chick is a fucking star. Mm-hmm. But maybe or maybe not in this band, I don't know. But mm-hmm. she's a fucking star down the road for sure. And I just kind of like thought about it, like, yeah, that's cool. But I had Peter Dolman. What did I fucking right, care? Right. You right. know, like, that's great. Good for her, yeah. you know. So I was like, holy shit. So I talked to her a little bit and I said, yeah, I'm just going to send you more music. Uh, record stuff. Give me some stuff. I'm going to go talk to the guys tonight and we'll def- definitely work you out a, a tryout. We were about to get another guy. But I'm glad you called, you know. So did you have to? I mean, did you have to think about the fact that, you know, a female voice dude, is going to be a lot different from what you're, dude, what you're used to. You don't, you know, Andrew. Like, <laughs> when you've gone through all the fucking guys I've gone through, and all the different levels of, you know, greatness and insecurities, and and you get to this point, and then someone that great, and I'm not a very open-minded person, dude. I'm, I'm, I consider. I'm not what you would call a liberal politically, but I'm liberal, you know, mentally. Like, okay. I'm just, I'm, well, I'm pretty, you know, whatever. I'm just, I'm open-minded. You're an open-minded. I come from a family that's got every race, every creed, mm-hmm. every sexual orientation, like everybody, but sure. But I'm proud of my family. They're all different. So to me, it's just like, this makes fucking sense. Because I've seen her live. I knew how great she was. I was like, she's great. Holy shit, this could be unbelievable. I wonder what she'd sound like singing 1969. So I show up to practice that night, and I could see the long face on everybody. It was just like, yeah, we're going to, you know, this, this may or may not be the right decision, but we're going to do this, you know. And then Mark was going to say his thing. I'm well, before anyone talks, I want to tell you about what happened today. And I go, I got this random text from this singer. This is how I explain it. I got this random text from this singer that I saw about a year ago. Fucking blew my mind. Wants a tryout. They're all, really? What's his name? I'm like, well, here's the thing. <laughs> well, it's a her. Really? And they, they all, just, they're all like me in that way. They're like, really? Really? I am a, but here's the thing. She's black. And they're all like, oh, that's fucking awesome. And then they all, do, all of them looked at me and they're like, I got goosebumps. Because <laughs> it just, it just somehow made sense. Well, the, complete zigzag from whatever thing we'd all known. Right. I'm all, but here's the last thing. She's only 22 years old. Mm. So, and they're like, oh my God, this is fucking nuts. Like, maybe that's the one that's, that's just too much. I'm that's all, the hardest part here. Let's just see what she's like as a person because she carries herself much older. And let's just see. So I sent her some music. We'll see what happens. So everybody plays. We're like, fucking, yeah, yeah. Like, this could be fucking, they're all so excited, you know. Made, it put a, Energy and everybody just that night. And then we had to think about what we are going to do about our other friend that we almost said yes, but we'll say, well, before we do anything, let's just see what she does. And she sends me music, dude, two days later. And I, I just, I, I, first thing I listened to is 1969. is like, this is fucking insane. This song is written for her lyrically. Fucking, she connects to it on an emotional level. It's like, even Peter's gonna freak out on this, which he mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Peter loves her, thinks she's fucking great. That's so true. she's fucking killing it. But uh, I immediately sent it to Rob. Two minutes later, ring. 
dude, what the fuck? Where the fuck did you, what, dude, this is insane. You fucking, where'd she come from? Like, I told him the whole story. He's like, you guys just got saved. He's like, I told you it's going to be one fucking year until you get your <laughs> shit together. He's like, this said, when Peter quit, I said, it's going to be one year. It's been a fucking year. I'm like, you're right. So here it is a year later, and we've got a plethora of things we've accomplished, mm -hmm. and we set ourselves up to do this next year properly. Like, there was no rush after that. Once you know it's right, like I said, it's kind of like the attitude I got towards American at that time, but I, I'm even more cautious of, like, hurrying it because it's all the right pieces. Everyone's so cool, and the music's so fucking inspired. She's up in... Portland, Portland, which is an hour on a plane. Right. You know, it's right. like it's nothing. Flights are, you know, 130 bucks. Like, And is she still in which mountain? Yeah. That's, okay. She can do that. Yeah. I'm not all... No, I wasn't sure whether, whether time commitments... Uh, Maybe someday we're down the line, but they're yeah. not, they haven't even practiced in a long time. Okay. Like, they get back together, we'll get back together. They get back to... There's always going to be time. We're, we're, we have lives. Yeah. You know... And until there's a supply to fucking demand you mm. or demand to supply you or whatever that is, whatever, you know what I mean? It's like until there's a whole bunch of that, there's really no reason to worry about it or project any kind of competition for time. Sure. I think it'll all kind of work out. So you've got some show. I know you've got some shows coming up. Do you have recordings coming up, record this year? Yeah, we look on... I, I want to actually... Uh, First of all, shore up our business. Uh -huh. It's finally time. After a year of doing it this way, it's time to fucking, you know, put the right pieces, like, you know, lawyer, management, record label, in that order. I want a lawyer first. Uh-huh. A really good one, because <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get locked into anybody's bad ideas. Right. So, that's kind of, you know, it's all been set up for this, man. And with her, the thing that makes it different is her age and her just her overall intelligence and thoughtfulness mm. okay like as as a band dress the dead now you have a t completely different animal because it's really centered around her mm -hmm. you know we're a band and we write the i write the majority of the music but we all contribute on that and it, but at the end of the day you know we're behind her she's standing in the light and we're the ones a little out of focus and I'm okay with that at this stage of my life it's like that's what it should, yeah. should be she is going to be a star probably on multiple levels not just in this this industry she's an actress she's does plays she does you know TV and movies she's been in movies she's done stuff so you know she's got a bright future and all I want to be for her is like uh, you know one of the great things that happens to her in her life right because she's a good person, man. Yeah. She deserves good things. So it's it's kind of, to me, it's like a an ironic gift from the musical gods just to all be coming together like this. Because if it would have been some dude and just another guy and random, you know, dude, even if he's great, the world might not even really give it the time of day. Mm -hmm. With a girl like Kayla who just doesn't fit into the normal mold. And, and who has an incredible set of pipes. Incredible set of pipes, but to go with that, an incredible brain. Mm -hmm. And... uh just the depth to her, dude. She's yeah. just got, you know, when you talk to her, she's not, there's no ditziness to her. There's no bimbo. There's no goofy laughing. Mm -hmm. It's just like a thoughtful girl who's been through a lot already, who mm. looks at us like, I'm safe here. This is my safe place. These guys are cool. And then, and we are. We're, we're cool to her. We respect her. We're like her older brothers, you know. We yeah. just look out for her.
So it's 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 kind of perfect. The um, the one time that I've seen Dress the Dead was just about a year ago, at the Killian on Command benefit. Right, right, right. And her first show. That was her first show. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask. Yeah, I was surprised. I had no idea. I I had no idea that Dress the Dead existed at that point. And then you guys pop on stage um, with her. So. Yeah, it was it was a surprise, right? <laughs> and it was it was Brent. I mean, it was yeah. Right. There's I, a, I mean, we were the we were the guinea pig band that day. Yeah, I mean, the PA. Like I remember, there's a couple things going on with the PA, and uh, somebody had stepped on the plug and unplugged it back. And there's uh, so many wires going on because yeah. they've never had a big show like that. Day. Right, not like that. We had a massive PA and a massive. So there's like shit going on while we were yeah. playing, but we just trudged along and. No, it was. We went through our set. It was a good set. Yeah, it was cool. It was oh, wow. cool. It was our first set. So, but I, I think, uh, but people saw that like the potential to be a force and different was there. Yeah, it's come a long way since then. I look for. I mean, I definitely am going to be at that Uli John Ross show in March. You got to go to the uh, the one we're doing on February first at the uh, Great American Music Hall. Who are you playing with? Uh, we're doing the Ghost Next Door and us. It's, okay. it's their album release show. Okay. Right. It's best best venue to play in San Francisco. Um, we've been going a long time, and this has been fascinating. I do want to ask you just a, one more thing, and that is just to re, let's go back to the thing a year ago and talk about, just real quick, uh, the Killian on Command show. You were one of the organizers of that. Yeah. And you kind of were the, well, you ended up being kind of the MC. Yeah, that wasn't my... And that wasn't what your plan had been. No. But you were, I think, the one guy who was on stage the entire time during the violence set. Pretty right? much. It, it all, well, okay, let's just back up to uh, Mark Hernandez deserves just as much credit okay. as I do, if not more, because he was in the band. Mm-hmm. And he had a vested, heartfelt yeah. interest in, in Sean as a person, as, as I did to a certain degree. But, you know, I wasn't super tight friends with Sean. Mm-hmm. And back in the old days, we all kind right. of went over that. Like, he didn't give a fuck about us. You yeah. Know? But he's older, like all of us. And I I worried about him. I, I really, his wife, I know. I've known forever. You know, they got kids. Sean, know, just, Sean's wife. Yeah, Sean's wife. Yeah. Dana. And I, yeah. I just, you know, it's like, it just seemed like it's such a, I mean, if anything happens to me, I hope someone right. will look out for me that way. So. You know, again, from the standpoint of the sum of the parts, once we got everyone together, it became obvious, like, I had to be a catalyst for the music mm-hmm. and getting people together. Like, you know, Mark could do so much, but I had to do the other part. But then other people came in. You know, originally it was Beth Reisner was was a huge part of it. Scott Holderby, Matt Camacho. I'm trying to think who else was at those first meetings. I know that I'm leaving out somebody. Ray, Ray Vegas, who didn't end up doing it. He couldn't be there, but there was, there was a group, an original group that got together and and talked about doing it without anyone violence involved at all, really. Mm. And, um, you know, it was just like, let's just do this for Sean. You know, Beth was ex-girlfriend, but still friends, you know. So she kind of brought it to us, and then, you know, Mark uh, took it in his heart and just, like, he really did as much as he could. You know, fast forward to, or the me going over to Phil Demel's house to like learn exactly if I'm playing that right, yeah, which was a really crazy thing, right. and you know he was blown away by that, and uh, 
And then Rob, not sure if he's going to be able to do it because he's getting ready for their tour and they have a light. That day they had a big light uh, test okay. for all their new lights, which is it's a big deal in a machine head show. You know, He's like, I don't even know if I can. And then eventually he agreed to do it, but kind of had kept it from us and was the first guy in violence there yeah. the day of the show. I heard he was going to show up, but I walk out from doing sound check and he's just standing there. I'm like... <laughs> He's got a guitar in his hand. He's all, hey, what's up, Craig or Boo? You know, so he calls me. And, and he's just like, you know, I'm like, so you're, you're here? He's all, I'm here. He's all, I'm, I'm going to do it. He's like, I got a lot of work to do. I got to learn a lot of shit. I got to go over stuff. So he was involved. And then I know that that may have caused a rift between him and Phil even more so. Because mm. I think Phil felt like, well, fuck, dude. Why don't you just, you know, just agree to it in the first place, you know, because that's Phil's band. So there was a thing there, but that was really cool. But then, you know, the show itself, uh, we, we had flown um, William Howell up from uh, KNAC, who's a good right, friend. Right, And he was going to be the MC and introduce everybody. But right before everything started, he goes, it's funny, he goes, hey, Craigers. He calls me Craigers, with an S, Craigers. He's all, Plur- I don't really know everybody that's here today. And I could see he was nervous. He's like, do you mind? I'll just do the raffle and you introduce everybody. I'm like, oh, my God, dude. I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, why are you doing this then? I'm like, fuck. I can see. I could understand. He got, you know, I love him, too. He's And he's great. He's a great radio guy, you know, fucking knows everybody. But in that moment, I was like, motherfucker. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so that's why I ended up emceeing. Cause right. Again, who else is going to do it? Everyone clammed up. Did you know everybody on that stage? Yeah. Okay. Just about. Yeah. A couple people I, I knew as acquaintances, but most everybody, yeah. Okay. So I could talk about them with, you know, the the carefree kind of like, I know that fucking guy. Yeah. You know? This fucking guy, that fucking guy, right. you know. So I just like let it fly. Yeah. And my voice was gone. It, and Mark wanted to talk, but his voice was gone before the show even started because he was so emotionally spent. Mm-hmm. And then so, you know, after that, after the whole thing was done and everyone was like, uh, uh, you know, I got my embrace in with uh, Phil Demo. I know that Raymond and our caught it. Like when I gave each other a hug after the show and he actually caught that moment, mm. which was, you know, 30 years in the making. Right, right, right. You know, right. and uh, it was pretty heavy. And then for about a couple of weeks after the show, Mark was just like, didn't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. He was just like, uh, it was just too much. It was, it was really, and I think he felt a little slighted, like people kind of forgot about him and okay. how much work he put in, and I didn't. Yeah. You know, I was like, I didn't, dude. If you didn't bring me in, I wouldn't have fucking even gone to the extra mile, you know. So, but that took it. It was emotionally tough on everybody, but especially him. He, he's real close. So, you know, as an as an audience member and someone who grew up. You know, in that scene with that music, it was emotionally tough for me. You know, my experience was I knew that I was watching something probably for the last time. And it felt like a celebration, but it also felt like an ending for me. Um, And this is purely my personal feeling as I'm watching this, right? I mean, it it was awesome. It was tremendous and a lot of fun. But I also felt like, okay, I think I think this is done. At least, I I, I think I, I think it's done. Well, me. and I mean, for 
Maybe at the time you did, but things are better since then. Well, you know, Sean's doing a lot better. Right. I don't necessarily even mean. I mean, it was hard to see Sean up there. Um, he was at his with worst his family, at that point. and he looked so small and so frail. And it was like, man, we're all here for him, and we're all here to support him and to help him get through this. Um, but man, that's hard to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so was. there was that kind of. It ended on that note. But even even watching violence play world in a world. That was kind of like the thing, okay, I mean, this is, we'll never, this is really special, and we're, we're never going to see this again. And I felt like when I walked away from that, like I was able to shut that, um, that part of my, my history down a little bit. Like, just, just close the book on that. This has been a huge part of my life that has now been celebrated and is kind of over. And there was something sad about that for me. I think that, I think it was a sadder moment in the moment yeah. than it turned out to be. Because the way I see it now, it'd be, you know, he went, he got the, he got the, uh, you know, he got his new liver, right? And then it was rejecting, right? Then it was taking, then it was rejecting. Now it's taken, yeah. And now he's doing really, really good, like surprisingly good, yeah. So, but what the, all the money this generated sixty thousand dollars that amazing. show, yeah. and but I think we got thirty six thousand to him, which okay. they needed because, yeah. you know, I mean, dude, the insurance, it just doesn't work the way when you get in a, in a bind like that. You're even if you're getting that money, it's it's hanging over you, you know. Sure. Like, I've never been in that bind, but I know that there's you're always paying something back. Mm-hmm be it what whatever it be premiums or whatever just it's it's just a huge thing so what we did is it allowed them to have that time afterwards to for him to recover right and just be able to pay their mortgages and yeah do the things they had to do put food on the table so everybody that was involved including the fans did that yeah it was no money squandered so uh now on that level it was fucking great and Tremendous success. Yeah, tremendous success. One little, you know, it wasn't a small drop in the bucket. It was a pretty big drop in the bucket. Yeah. And we all did our part. But now that Sean's better, you know, we don't know exactly what the future brings. I wouldn't necessarily count out anything. And let's just leave it at that. You know, but I I guess one funny thing to say, you know, the two, actually... uh, one was during the show, you know, people struggle playing violent songs. Yeah. People, because it was so odd, you know. Yeah. It's like, it, you know, after playing the violent stuff, it's, I said death was easier than forbidden stuff. Violence is easier than forbidden stuff, but it's real fucking close. Because Rob <laughs> was, you know, originator in forbidden with me. So there's that, there's that complexity that him and Phil both wrote with. Mm-hmm. And it's just difficult picking structures and, and you know, things are weird. So, one thing was what when they were playing and people were struggling so hard with the vocals, I look right over at Sean. I'm all, see what you did, asshole. Uh huh. I'm all, what a dick. And he just looked at me, laughed. Ah, I'm like, you fucking made it so hard for anyone to come out here and do your shit. And he just had a laugh over that. And then after we were done, I didn't hear Phil say this, but he was talking to a bunch of people. He's out. That was really cool seeing you guys try to play our songs. Try. Try. Uh-huh. <laughs> some were people. Some people, and I'm not naming names, were very prepared, and other people came in 
halfway prepared. And if you didn't do your homework, you know, you may the light may or may not have been as shined upon it in the moment, but you know, for us guys listening, we know who was doing what. Yeah. And I worked my ass off. Mm-hmm. I personally made sure that I knew every fucking note of what I was going to do. Yeah, clearly you did. Um, Matt Camacho. Yeah, Matt did uh, as well. Nailed it. Um, vocally, Will Carroll was fantastic. A subterfuge yeah. school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the guy, I don't know his name, but the guy from Chaos. Um, um, I think he sang Kevin. Paraplegic and a He's, couple of other Yeah, things. he sang with Chaos and then he came up and sang... Uh, TDS with us. Okay. Which was fucking epic. Who's the guy that sang Paraplegia? That was him. That was, yeah. Same he was guy. great. He sang yeah. Chaos. So. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, you know, you know who his son, uh, uh, his dad was uh, Carl from Vicious Rumors. Okay. I knew his dad was yeah. somebody who. Yeah, yeah. He's an extremely talented guy, Kevin. Is yeah. Extreme. He sang with VR in Europe and did okay. dates and sang all Carl's shit. You're like, if you, dude, He's yeah. very, it, you know, he's a guy, he's a family guy, so his life has changed. Mm-hmm, but he sure. very well could have been a singer in a really big band. Yeah. And he plays guitar well, too. He's, he's a pretty talented guy. He did really well. Really, really cool person. But it was watching those guys, watching amazing singers just eat it, trying to sing. Well, here's what's lyrics. fucking funny about him. Best part was that I was, two days before the show, we were getting people, singers skipping out that were supposed to do shit because they got, whatever. Yeah. Let's just say whatever reason, they got cold feet, and I said, I'm going to fucking get Kevin to come out and do TDS. And I called, or I, I, I texted him and I called him. I'm like, you want to do, he's like, I'd love to do something, dude, but that's not a lot of time. I'm all, you can do it. He's like, fuck, that's a lot of work. I'm all, you could do it. And he's like, I'll give him my best shot. I'm like, You'll do it. And then he did it, and he was arguably the best. You know, there was guys like Zet did a really good job. And, I mean, you know, everybody everybody did pretty good. Chuck did a good job. Yeah. But not everyone has that, uh, all that shit in their head the yeah. way that Kevin did. Ke- Kevin was a big violence fan, so he had it all in his head already. Yeah. Yeah. And it made him uh, step up to the plate, and I, and I really gained a lot of respect. He missed one cue in the song. Okay. But who's nitpicking? Like, a lot of people did. He still did better than everybody else. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and I shouldn't say better. He just stood out. He had a lot of confidence. Well, I mean, it's uh, you know, a year later, he, he stuck in my head. A lot of people said that. And though. I didn't know him at all. A lot of people that were there, or even people that watched the video yeah. in Europe, or, yeah. you know, a lot of people said that he really stuck out. Yeah. And, I, and getting to know him, I, I really like that guy. Like, he's a really good dude. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean... I, th- I just think that anybody that tried, I give them a lot of credit for going for it. And yeah. It's not easy. You know, I would be real interested to see if they did that for Forbidden, how that would go. Because mm-hmm. knowing how fucking... Because I've only seen a couple people even play our riffs right. Which is a fucking ridiculous thing to say, right? Because, <laughs> you know, there's other bands out there that are much harder, right? But there's something about the way people hear the Forbidden stuff to the translation from here... From their ears to their fucking hands, it just ain't the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen, you know, the only guy I ever saw that could play a forbidden, or that showed me how to play forbidden riff right was uh, the guitar player for fucking Voivod, um, my Daniel Mungrain, mm. fucking great guitar player, played me the two part harmony to infinite perfectly in Japan. Okay. So Craig, I want to show you something. Sat down on one knee and fucking played it. I was like, you're the only guy that's ever done that fucking right, dude. The only guy. He's a really? I'm like, 
Yeah, really. It's like, wait, you're in Voivod. That makes sense. That makes sense. He's fu- Well, he's a <laughs> martyr. He's fucking great. Yeah. He's yeah. just great. I, I, he's That album, by the way, is my favorite album last year. The new Voivod. Yeah. Yeah. That Stella. is a fucking Stella. well-written record, yeah. boy. Return to form, man. They have for a while, but the production and everything yeah. about that album is just... I talked to him about it. I was just, why is this so good? He's all because we just said fuck it. He's like, it's, it's this or nothing. So, it worked. Yeah. Sometimes, like I said, when you, and like I said, it just relates to goes back to dress the dead. When you know it's good, you don't have to try hard. Things come easier, you know. And I think that happened with Voivod in mm-hmm. this last record. I think that they, they, they hit their stride. And they said, let's just be relaxed about it. Yeah. He's not Piggy. He's Daniel. But he's got Piggy in his back pocket. It sounds like Voivod, though. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, it's fucking beautiful. One of my favorite bands. Mine too. Thank you for coming and spending, uh, again, uh, such a, a large amount of your time with me and going through all this. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a privilege to uh, to have you here and to hear these stories. Um, really, it's, it's awesome. Thanks for all you've done. And um, for the impact that you've had on this music, which has meant so much to me. Deepest gratitude. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I'll just say that uh, this it, it was as fun for me and probably a, a bit therapeutic to get some of this shit off my chest. And I hope to not piss people off, but it was my truth. Not necessarily the truth, but it was my truth. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing it with me. All right. All right.
Fuck life!